What's up, everybody? Welcome to another extra special episode of Watch If You Dare, Wait, a horror movie podcast. Aaron, were you in the room with the dog? Yeah, why? Where were you when the dog was out? Yeah, no, the dog was with me the whole time. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let me see your blood. Let me see it right now, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second week in a row that I have transformed mid-conversation. But yeah, uh, that was my co-host, Derek. Welcome, Derek. Yo, yo. This week. And uh, this is Aaron, as always, your monster boy. And we have an extra special guest this week, our college buddy, Devin, who is here to join us. Say hey, Devin. Hello, everyone. Cool, cool. So this week, we have a big episode, finally, after everybody like whining and complaining about us not doing big movies. Guess what? Here's a fucking huge one. Yeah. So we are going to be doing John Carpenter's 1982 masterpiece, The Thing. Is this the biggest one we've done since Texas Chainsaw, our first episode, you'd say? Uh, maybe. I mean, as far as actual long-term modern impact, I would say probably, yeah. If I'm being honest, I've been kind of terrified about doing a big episode because, frankly, what hasn't been talked to death about this movie? What has not been discussed by smarter people than us? What can we bring to the conversation beyond ourselves? But, you know, that's kind of where it comes down on, like, that's why we're doing this show, is we want to talk about, like, how this movie has impacted us uh-huh. and go from there. And you can bring a scientist to the conversation as well. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we yeah. talk about blood. I also love how we still did The Fog first before any of Carpenter's other major big horror movies. This is the first first like major big carpenter i think it's good because we've gotten a lot of the like carpenter background out of the way yep you know a lot of that stuff we've kind of already discussed and we can move forward so but yeah as always we kind of start the episode by talking about some things that we have recently consumed horror or horror adjacent related and of course we always start with our guests so Devin, uh do you have anything this week that you want to kind of talk about or recommend to listeners Ooh, let's see wasn't prepared for this one um or really any horror in the past that you've really enjoyed. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I guess as long as I've known you and as long as we've all known each other, we've talked about movies a lot, but you specifically in horror, I don't know like much about background wise, you know, and you picked this movie. This was your choice. So like what specifically about horror kind of draws you to the genre in general? Or are you completely like, I hate horror and I just happen to like this movie? No, I really enjoy the horror genre further. It's the, uh, most of the art direction. I mean, we see that with, with this movie in particular with um, top-notch art production for uh, the early 80s with uh, how these different monsters can uh, change configurations and incorporate different elements from both humans and animals to where you get these really complex-looking uh, structures. Yeah, totally. When this genre does practical effects, it really does them impressively, especially because it seems like a lot of these movies have lower budgets than like blockbusters. So what they're able to accomplish with smaller budgets is also kind of incredible. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad that modern horror is now kind of going back towards practical effects again it seems like yeah it's interesting because i feel like even uh re-watching this movie over the weekend it really kind of stands the test of time these effects here are still terrifying compared to a lot of the more modern day horrors we've seen yeah with, uh, computer generated visuals and whatnot yeah i would agree with you there was definitely something about those 80s effects where there had been enough really 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 serious craft work going on from the top guys and they're working on movie to movie and honing those skills and i mean i still personally think that probably the best practical effects that we're ever going to really have, period, in movies, is this movie, The Thing, and probably Romero's Day of the Dead. Yeah. And from there, like, I kind of struggle, because every movie kind of has its flaws, but this movie is one of those few 
perfect movies top to bottom, including the effects. I would throw Alien in there as well. The first Alien movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the first Alien. Yeah, true. This one, this one's interesting too, because you don't, what they do really well actually is they never give you an image of what the monster actually looks like. Yeah, totally. And I think that works to their advantage because you can't really compare it against anything else that was done before, such as Alien, where you're not comparing this alien against that alien because you have no idea what this monster is supposed to look like. And in a way, that's kind of part of the terrifying aspect of it too, that it incorporates again yeah. these different uh, organisms into its uh, persona in a way. And that was a purposeful choice that I'll talk about once we kind of get into the history of the movie as well. Um, okay, but yeah, we're, we're totally getting ahead of ourselves. Derek, real quick, do you have any recommendations? Because um, we're definitely like all hopping to get into this. Oh movie. yeah, yeah. I'll keep mine much more brief than past episodes. I really only have like one solid recommendation and it's honestly something I just started reading. I'm only like 50 pages into it. I had read Grady Hendrix's We Sold Our Souls and I brought that up on yeah. past episode. I went back and I started reading My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is Grady Hendrix's books that came out back in 2016 that a lot of people have said is kind of his best work. It actually takes place in the 80s. I believe it's 1988 or 87, right around when I was born. And it takes place in South Carolina and it follows these two friends as they're kind of going through their junior year of high school into becoming seniors. This isn't really spoiling anything because this is like the first few pages of the book. The book starts with the main character, modern day, like all grown up, finding a news article or receiving news article that an exorcist just passed away. She drops some hints that like this exorcist kind of saved her life and maybe saved her best friend's life. And then it goes backwards in time to the start of the story. And Grady Hendrix is so fucking good at not only writing female characters, but just writing age appropriate characters. Because yeah. he actually starts off like when they first become friends, like at eight or nine years old. And his voice for like when they're children is like spot on perfect. There was a little bit of anxiety just reading through like the memories of going through middle school and elementary school and being really awkward and first starting to like develop into a teenager and start being attracted to people. There were events of embarrassment and the stuff that you will think about at night randomly and and like still feel embarrassed <laughs> about 20 years later. Yeah. Yep. And then I just got to like the focal point where the weird thing that is supposed to set out the chain of events happens to her friend and it was genuinely a really creepy moment. And so I am itching to get back into the book because it's supposed to just go balls to the wall now. I highly recommend even just 50 pages and I highly recommend Grady Hendrix's My Best Friend's Exorcism. It has really nice touch like the book itself is almost like a yearbook so like the inside covers are like people signing the character's yearbook and everything it's it's really cool the only other small thing is that i kind of had this thought when i was shuffling through my music the other day and the melvin's history of bad men mansfield which you probably know exactly what i'm talking <laughs> about came up
And yeah. I looked it up because I was like, I know that's in True Detective. I swear that song would be so good in so many like horror related properties. And the only other thing that song has appeared in is I Know Who Killed Me, the 2007 Lindsay Lohan movie. Was it 2007? Yeah, it was 2007. That shitty Lindsay Lohan movie, I Know Who Killed Me. Wow. So that is great. Hey, horror directors or anyone working in horror? Use the Melvins more often. <laughs> yeah. History of a Bad Man, especially because that song is just perfect for a horror movie. But yeah, otherwise, that's all I got. So I'll throw it back to you. Uh, so first things first, I've been putting this off just because I keep forgetting it and I haven't put it in my notes to do. But I would like to thank my mother-in-law, Renee. She specifically has been a listener from the beginning and a big supporter of our show. Hi, thank, thank you. you. She got me a sweet new interface for Christmas slash birthday. So I'm using that now. I hope my audio sounds a little bit better to everybody. Um, I also bought a new mic with some birthday money. So yay, cool. Thank you, mama. So as far as stuff goes, I am continuing to watch HBO's The Outsider. It is still great. Um, I'm really digging how the show is progressing. I'm liking a lot of the characters even more. Cynthia Erivo is fantastic and somebody that everybody should definitely pay attention to going forward. Very good. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it kind of wrapping up and getting to some of the like real weirdness. Also, rewatched Doctor Sleep. Um, I got my copy of it. Man, you've been you've been on a Stephen King kick here. A little bit, yeah. Um, I rewatched Doctor Sleep. I watched the director's cut uh, that is on the physical media release. It is not substantially different. The movie is exactly the same. It just has a couple of extra character moments and beats and extra lines of dialogue. So overall, the theatrical cut is a tiny bit tighter, but not drastically different. But boy, oh boy, that movie is so fucking good. Having rewatched it in Midsummer and the other movie I was going to bring up, Parasite, again, by oh, far, yeah. Midsummer and Doctor Sleep are probably tied for number one horror movie for me. Both are definitely like in my top five for last year, I think. But yeah, Doctor Sleep is fantastic. It's all the warmth of actual Stephen King that you want and character and emotional stuff, but with the style depth of Stanley Kubrick. So it's kind of the best of both worlds, really. Yeah. Um, the performances are great. It's fucking fantastic. I'm super excited to see Mike Flanagan's new movie for Netflix and see what he does with season two of Hill House. And like I mentioned a second ago, I also rewatched Parasite, uh, which by now the Oscars have happened. Everybody knows that it's won a lot of the main major awards. I'm so happy. Um, which I could I'm not be so happy, happy. But yeah, more happy about. Fuck you, um, Joker. That movie is, yeah, that movie is <laughs> so good. The performances in it are great. It's so well made. There's so many like small, subtle little bits and pieces in it. But rewatching it this time, I was really struck by how funny it was. Darkly, darkly funny. Like I was cackling through so many scenes where the first time I was watching it, I was just slightly not confused, but I was just watching with intent because I was paying attention to every small detail, looking for every little bit and piece of information that I could get. But watching it a second time and knowing where things end up and seeing a lot of things that are set up from the beginning or alluded to at the beginning and just kind of really like looking at the situations for what they are. I was laughing my ass off. So not directly horror, but it's very like horror adjacent. Right. It is a satire thriller kind of thing. Lastly, like I mentioned in the last episode, Heather and I have been going through the Saw movies, which has been an ill-advised uh, <laughs> pursuit. And uh, we watch Saw 3, a.k.a. Dull Blades Don't Bite, a.k.a. Jigsaw is number one asshole. The more that we get through the series, the more we really just realize Jigsaw is a complete and utter dick to pretty much everybody. His whole entire like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm 
going to let you value the life that you had that you didn't appreciate before. Uh, I'm going to cover you in pig guts. Uh, plot, dot, dot, dot. Like, it's... <laughs> I have cancer. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he is just the biggest dick. He's not teaching anybody any lessons. He's just inconveniencing people and killing a lot of people. Um, but I don't like just constantly we were like, wait, what is this person supposed to get out of this? What lesson is he teaching here? He's really just being an ass to everybody. So yeah, Jigsaw is definitely the villain of that series unequivocally, not just because he's designed to be the villain of that series, but because he genuinely is a complete and utter asshole. So yeah, the more we watch the Saw movies the more we realize like yeah Jigsaw is completely a jerk but yeah that's that's kind of all I wanted to mention real quick before we got into this movie you've only gotten through three then the first three we have gotten through yes we've gotten through the movies that we already saw years ago right. before we quit watching them how many are there now there are eight and there is about no to be way. a ninth yeah, one yeah Spiral yes. is going to be the ninth one there's still time though for Jigsaw give him a chance I don't know <laughs> yeah he might uh he might come around I'm kind of excited about the new one though it's still Darren Lynn Bozeman who did two, three, and I think maybe four. But looking at this new one, the trailer just came out this past week. It stars Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson, and it seems what? to be a way yeah. more toned down. <laughs> it is adjacent to the Saw movies, and it looks very seven in its approach. Uh-huh. But it's like all the stuff from Saw that's interesting without the bad actors and the shitty editing and the like douche rock new metal soundtrack um, it just seems to be like all the things that i don't like in the saw movies so i'll give it a chance if we make it through eight i will give it a chance i can't wait for you to sit down to watch it and it fucking opens up with crawling in my skin. <laughs> uh just a, like a Skrillex <laughs> remix of let the bodies hit the <laughs> boosh, 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 floor. Just uh, I, think, I think Saw has a has a warm place in my heart because of the nostalgia associated with it of the yeah mid, totally mid two thousands douche rock movement as you as you mentioned. I mean, I honestly will say I, I think the first Saw movie is still a good movie. It led to a lot of bullshit after it, but it's a good oh, movie. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And there's there's definitely some things in these movies, these sequels that were like, oh yeah, okay, this is kind of interesting but for the most part we're just looking back on like oh yeah movies were kind of rough during this time and fashion was kind of rough during this time and this person's house this apartment they live in who the hell decorated this movie because nobody would live like this (laughs) just why is everything conveniently covered in mold and rust I don't don't know like there's just too many things that we're looking at and trying our best to like be open minded about it but we're just looking back on this movie so critically Mm -hmm. because it was such a weird point in time where horror wasn't quite sure what it wanted to be yet and a lot of the nostalgia wave that we've been going through in the last like five years hadn't really kicked in yet but yeah uh, if we go all the way through eight i will go see the new one and report back so that's all i've got we're going to kind of skip any kind of initial conversation. Let's get right into the movie because we got a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. But yeah, before we do that, I want to take a quick break to hear from us about our friends at Nightmare Threads. 
What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link, or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Alright, so let's get into the movie. Again, we are discussing 1982's masterpiece from the horror maestro himself, John Carpenter, The Thing. 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. Warmest place to hide. Hell yeah. Boy. (laughs) Boy. Man, this fucking movie, man. All right. So, right away, this is the first time you've seen it, right? So, this is the first time I've seen it start to finish. It's one of those movies where I I caught like so many parts of it just out of context. And finally, like, I sat down and watched it start to finish and it blew my fucking mind away. It's amazing. Devin, you had mentioned earlier in the episode, it still holds up as a generally terrifying movie all these years later. Terrifying. And I don't even find sci-fi horror like alien horror too scary but this movie like did a good job of creeping me the fuck out the body horror is some of the best body horror i think i've ever seen same with the practical effects i don't know what else there is to say to about this movie like but it's such a good movie it's so well paced it captures the theme of isolation and turning on your own friends and the people you trust oh, yeah kurt russell is so fucking good as uh, mccrady this is john carpenter as best i don't care if you are like a scaredy cat like i am go watch this movie i don't care if you can handle barely handle horror or you handle horror really well if you have not seen the thing 1982 is the thing fucking stop what you're doing and go watch it it's a masterpiece of a horror movie yeah this is definitely essential viewing whether you're a horror fan or not but if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen the thing by now what the fuck are you doing oh yeah absolutely. i'm ashamed of myself that it took me this long to see this movie oh yeah because this is also like right up your alley i was kind of surprised when you told me when we recorded the last episode that you were pretty sure you hadn't actually seen it start to finish so to get started Devin, tell us a little bit about your personal history with this movie like why did you pick this movie what drew this movie to you because even from the beginning we were kind of
kind of asking our friends to come on if there was something that they were passionate about, you immediately were like, I want to do the thing. So tell oh, us yeah. a little bit about why. I remember talking to you in college and not only did you say that this is your favorite horror movie, but this might be one of your favorite movies, period. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I saw this movie maybe, I'd say, 20 or so years ago at this point. Jeez. I don't know. I really enjoy the environment of the movie. Like you mentioned, the isolated nature of the entire plot. These guys are stuck in the middle of Antarctica very little supplies at their disposal to, you know, rectify any errors they might make with their quote-unquote scientific experiments, which, as we mentioned, we don't really know what (laughs) what they're doing down there. (laughs) Measuring snow. (laughs) They can measure snow and they can uh, get blood or something, I don't know. Kurt Russell drinks a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Really, the isolation of it coupled with this, you know, impending horror of you don't know who to trust and what to do with some, you know, unnamed terror. And I really enjoy, again, the sci-fi aspect of it, too, as, as as a person involved in science. This movie really sticks out to me when they go through these different uh, procedures in the movie, such as the, you know, now now iconic blood test they do in, in the uh, towards the end of the movie. But also some of the more, you know, microbiology aspects where on their, you know, super old PC, they show these different cells replicating and taking over, you know, the normal human cells and whatnot. So uh, from both a sci-fi scientific standpoint, it always sticks out as a really kind of fun experience, but also just the, the overall mood and again, the environment of the movie really uh, takes hold. Yeah, the isolation totally. and like kind of cabin fever aspects of it. The only other movie I can think of off the top of my head that matches it is The Shining. It's very different environments in terms of that's a fucking hotel and this is yeah. middle of Antarctica, but but it also is in a snowy environment. It's mm-hmm. also even smaller cast since it's just Jack Nicholson, the son, and his wife, yeah. but it's also a small cast. It's also, you know, a lot of snow. They're snowed in. They're mm-hmm. kind of trapped by this winter storm and then, yeah, you start losing the trust in people you thought you could trust or you once loved and just everything that could go wrong does go wrong yeah yeah. a lot of it is out of your control literally in this case an extraterrestrial parasite basically yeah yeah exactly going back to your point of the uh of the cabin fever aspect of this particular movie it's it's interesting if you compare it to other movies that follow a similar course like the shining or what i was actually thinking about is the uh the movie moon yep yeah and those those movies people are going crazy you know from boredom they're they're all alone in this movie however these guys may be isolated in a very, you know, desolate environment, but they're having a pretty good time with whatever the hell they're doing, right? Yeah. They're just drinking and playing, you know, poker games and video and, games, ping pong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it's just, I don't know. It's it's weird kind of comparing comparing these uh these different movies, the, the environments of these movies, but, you know, how the characters are, you know, dealing with these environments. Well, and it's amazing to me that within three years of each other, Alien, because that was, I think, 79, mm-hmm. and now The Thing, 1982, sci-fi horror... They fucking changed the game twice, first with Alien and then with The Thing. And what kind of astounds me is with Alien, which is also a masterpiece for different reasons, but it's also a horror sci-fi masterpiece. But they could have very well gone in that direction of like isolation and people Mm -hmm. starting to turn on each other while being hunted by this alien. They don't really do that in Alien. And I'm kind of glad that they had did it their way and they left that for The Thing. Because towards the end, like you were saying with the blood test, that scene where nobody in the room trusts anyone and one, mm-hmm. one or two of them, or maybe all of them, but one person are possibly this killer alien. Yeah. It's just so good. It's so yeah, fucking yeah. this. I'll bring it up as we go along, like kind of stuff that it remind me of, but like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I think like I said during Black Christmas, this is one of those movies that you just see its influence everywhere from video games to oh, other yeah, movies, to books, to everything in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And to your point with Alien, both movies definitely have kind of a deeper message rooted in the culture and politics of the time. Both different, though. You know, they're both approaching it differently. Alien definitely is looking at a critique of capitalism and work culture and corporatism and all these things that basically lead to all these people dying. And this movie is very much looking at Cold War paranoia and Red Scare. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, so it's, it's very much a reflection of its time, much like Alien. Just further proof that hashtag horror has always been political deal with it. But both definitely take a different approach, even though they have a lot of the same elements. For me personally, this is also a movie that I saw very young, like you, Devin. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned on the show before, uh, the movie store that we went to all the time growing up, that was like our main movie rental store. There was a guy there named Markle, R.I.P., who definitely used to like slip me stuff on the sly. I would like maybe come by after school and he would hand me certain things. And it was often stuff that I definitely shouldn't have seen, <laughs> especially not like for the age I was at. Nothing like super questionable. Like he didn't hand me anything like really like sexually lurid or anything like that. But he definitely yeah. handed me like this movie, Alien, Texas Chainsaw, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But this was one where he just asked me one day, I just remember him saying like, hey man, you like aliens? And I was like, yeah, aliens are cool, man. I really like Star Wars. And he was like, all right, man, check this one out. You're really going to dig it. Went home, watched it. It was like a day that my parents were at home, put it in and just had my fucking mind blown, especially by the effects in this movie. Because I've always been a very, very, very curious kid when it comes to movie making. I mean, that has always been like my passion. That's always been my background. And so even from a very young age, I have watched behind the scenes stuff. You know, there was never like any illusion there. My house was a very transparent movies are not real kind of household. Mm -hmm. And my mom definitely fostered some of that in me by watching like behind the scenes stuff with me. So like I remember growing up, I had the making of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids taped off Disney Channel. And I had those like making of Star Wars special features things. So I always loved looking at how creature effects and makeup and all of that sausage was kind of made. And this movie is the holy fucking grail of that. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, practical effects. you must have had a fucking ball with this game. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But not, not only that, but like as a young boy, I definitely responded to the whole like bunch of dudes on a mission. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. kind of got their own personalities and they're all working together and just like this team aspect. But little by little, like it's kind of a like one goes down, the other goes down kind of thing to where there's nobody left. Right. And just really responding to like Kurt Russell just being a fucking badass and Keith David and like all the other like weird old guys in this movie that for some reason <laughs> I was like, this is like the coolest crew of dudes ever. Again, like Rob Bottin's effects in this movie are... Mm-hmm ungodly and unparalleled. I mean, like, they're so, so good and they hold up so well to this day, but it doesn't matter, like, what age you are, what background you come from. It doesn't matter, like, who you are as a person. The themes in this movie are universal and they are timeless. The whole, like, paranoia and the fear of the people around you and, like, a weird sense of isolation. Like, all of that is stuff that 
everybody from every culture, every background can relate to. And it's stuff that we can relate to at literally any given time in history. So, I mean, this movie just from that standpoint will be timeless. And the movie literally telegraphs that too, because, and I, I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but the Norwegian team, like when they go and explore their camp, that's a foreshadowing of what's going totally. to happen later at their yeah. camp. Oh yeah, definitely. It looks like they went through the same exact thing that they decide to do at their camp later on. Yeah. It's just the cycle repeating. Yeah. Well, and kind of based off what you said with this cast, because um, this is actually even more so than Session 9. This is an all-male cast, and there literally is no woman at all yeah. in this movie. Like, they're not even a presence in this movie. And I know this came out in the early 80s, but feels so much like this is almost a critique on 80s action movies as well, because, like, this group of guys, like, at least a few of them feel like they would be the action star in whatever yeah. other movie, uh-huh. except this movie, like, is like, you wandered into the wrong action movie. This is actually a horror movie. Oh, by the way, like, yeah, this yeah. thing can easily take over y- your friends, and it doesn't matter how much of a badass you are. Kurt Russell is much more of a believable everyman than fuck even like John McClane is in Die Hard. Yeah. So. It's a yeah, it's a similar it's a similar atmosphere as like Predator, for example. Kind of the same idea there, where it's just a bunch of dudes in that case hunting down a you know unforeseen evil. Whereas in this case, it's basically the same thing. It's a bunch of dudes who look like your dad, though. That's the yeah. difference. It's not yeah. Arnold and the Body Venture. I mean, somebody's yeah, dad's sure. gonna look like that, sure. But like, yeah, it's there's a difference between like uh-huh. a group of like new gods hunting down an alien yeah. versus a bunch of regular schmoes getting picked off one by one and it's just so much more relatable well another thing too is i feel like they would have a better chance if this was a predator picking them off because this fucking creature is way more terrifying to me than even the alien even predator like this is something i would not want to deal with oh yeah well because too not only does it imitate and take form but like devin was saying earlier it's just unknowable like you never find out what is its purpose why is it doing what it's doing where does it come from what does it really look like? You don't find out any of this stuff. All you know is that it is here and it is fucking these dudes up and it is imitating and assimilating them for some reason, whether that's a purpose or whether that's just its mm-hmm. nature. But that's it. It's like the shark from Jaws. It just moves and it fucking eats and it keeps moving, you know, and that's all there is to it. And that's yeah. beyond terrifying because at least the predator is doing it for like bullshit reasons. Like he's hunting for culture and trophies and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's understandable and something that you can reason with. Like, even at the end of Predator, you know, he and Arnold have that face down where they kind of have that, like, hunter's acknowledgement to each other. It's like, all right, bro, you got me. And then, you know, he sets the bomb and (laughs) laughs and blows up. But Mm. with the thing, like, there is no understanding. There's no, like, talking to it and understanding it and having a moment of clarity with it where you acknowledge each other. None of that. None of that at all. It just keeps moving. No human quality whatsoever with the thing. Yeah. And even, like, one interesting thing that people kind of talk about and this movie is a great example of what we've brought up before of it does not have to spoon feed you all the details but it's not completely like fucking unknowable you know this Mm -hmm. movie gives you plenty of clues and plenty of inferences about things that are going on and you as a viewer have to read into them but you know one thing I do like is just the debate about the spaceship at the beginning the movie opens we see a UFO kind of fly toward earth wobble and then go down we just see it burst into flames in our atmosphere and then boom there's the title card right not at all how i thought this movie was going to start either yeah it looks like a fucking 1950s saucer which yep. funny enough too that's also how predator begins we also just see the yeah. predator ship like flying earth <laughs> you know there's also a conversation about was that the thing's ship 
Was that its ship or did it take over an entity or other alien life form that that was its ship? Did it cause it to crash or did it purposely crash on Earth? Even the intro, there's no explanation, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating because you can read into that however you want. Yeah, I think it'd be terrifying. And my own headcanon is that it took over another alien life form and crashed its ship onto Earth because that would be in line with the thing as a creature. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a creepier element to think of it that way. Well, even in a Lovecraftian sense, the whole like elder gods that have been around thousands of years and, you know, before humankind, these are the things that predate and blah, blah, blah. You know, even in this movie, you see the UFO crash at the beginning and you think, okay, that's how this movie starts. And then when you actually have the discovery of the ship by the guys and Copper specifically says like, fuck, this ice is probably a hundred thousand years old. Yeah. And you think, oh <laughs> yeah. shit, this thing has been here like forever just waiting, you know? So how long has it done this on other planets? Like it's just a pit stop at our planet. Yeah, yeah. How many times has it done this? You know, how many hundreds of species, if not thousands, has it like assimilated? At the same time, I think what terrible luck for the thing too, to crash in the middle of Antarctica. Yeah, really. Because <laughs> if it crashed anywhere else, it would have fucked up our planet before we even even took over. Oh, absolutely. Jeez. Crash in the middle of New York City and have a have a go, right? <laughs> yeah. On that note, and we'll get to it when we kind of get through talking about the movie, uh, there were sequels and bits and pieces of things. And oddly enough, that's where a few of them go is let's take the thing and put it in the middle of civilization. So, yeah, I mean, with this movie in general, again, I had a little bit of trepidation about getting into an episode this big because what can we talk about that hasn't been talked to death? Because with this movie and the themes that are there, and, and again, the themes like are all obvious now because we've talked about them endlessly since the movie came out, especially in the last 15, 20 years or so that this movie's been really critically reassessed. But just the themes of paranoia and the breakdown of a community and fear of the other and fear of oneself and body horror and you know you could read it as like cold war anxiety and body horror that has no regard for what living creature you are you could be yeah anything from an innocent creature as evidenced by the sled dogs to like a piece of shit but it, it doesn't matter it's gonna feed on you one way or the other it doesn't matter how pure of heart you are or anything because honestly that's this movie starts off disturbing with because the first victims of this thing are the fucking dogs yeah, and yeah. it's like oh shit but yeah like as you're saying continue like with the cold war but yeah like being the early 80s you know cold war anxiety is definitely like one of the things that this movie could be read as especially like the old idea of cultural infiltration and assimilation but also like mutually assured destruction like the whole way that this movie ends with the guys literally having to say like fuck it like we're not making out of it we gotta take the thing out but that means we go too but that's for the good of all like that we do that Mm -hmm. also like you could read this as a critique of toxic masculinity and how like the only way to really know for sure who's who is by like being more like open and being emotional and like taking your guard down and taking down a lot of your bullshit pretense and pride and like fuck you're right macho you know <laughs> you could also look at it again just from that Lovecraftian angle of you know the cosmic horror that's beyond our understanding and how humans are just these blips in the time span but being in the 80s too another thing that constantly comes up is just burgeoning fears of HIV at the time. That's a common critique of this movie because that was like really happening and starting to come into public consciousness right around the time that this movie was coming. Maybe like 
a tad after this movie, but it's definitely something that was on the horizon in the early 80s was yeah, the yeah. like whole entire HIV epidemic and people understanding what that really is. Mm-hmm. And it specifically has to do with blood. Yeah. So like there's tons and tons of stuff in this movie that you can look at and you can read and you can kind of take what your current cultural situation is and apply it or your situation, no matter like what culture or part of the world you're in, you can find ways that this is applicable and relatable. Like, I mean, shit today, like we could look at it as like a weird allegory for political affiliation, you know, like, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. what friends and family and coworkers do you have that could be secret Trump supporters or something like that? You know, like you don't know who they are really and blah, blah, blah. Like you could look at it however you want, but the themes are still relevant enough to where this movie will be continue to be timeless kind of building off of your thought of what can we say about this movie so we are going to do this but my my proposal to that is let's do it like we did any other movie and yeah we probably are going to be retreading all the ground that other people have already talked about but our purpose of this podcast when we first started is it's a kind of a social experiment for me of seeing how i can get back into horror movies what i can tolerate what i can't tolerate the types of fears and phobias that these movies are associated with and and whether or not I can recommend or both of us can recommend this movie for novices, people who are like me who like horror as a genre but still are kind of afraid to break into the movies or are thrill seekers or whoever. And yeah, we've talked to death about like the horrors that this movie captures, which is pretty much universal. And again, like I'd said earlier, I, I think this is one of those times where even if you are afraid of movies pretty easily, this is one that's worth it to stick through. This is one that's worth it to maybe even lose lose sleep over a little bit if need be. But like, this is one of those movies where you just kind of have to see it. It's one of those a thousand and one movies you need to watch before you die type of films. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to leave it at that. Like, it was scary shit to me. And I normally don't find this type of horror that scary, like aliens and body horror. It was scary shit. And that's all I can really say. But it doesn't really matter how scary it is because it's so fucking good. Yeah, totally. So... Let's kind of go through a brief history of the movie, because Derek, you said you specifically were kind of interested in some background. So, first things first, the movie itself is a second remake of a novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. I thought it was the first remake. Yeah, sorry, I meant to say second adaptation, rather. It's the okay, first remake, okay, yeah. yeah. The original 1951 movie was called The Thing from Another World. It's a Howard Hawks movie. It is pretty loosely based on the novella. Which now, interestingly enough, the novella was originally published in like Sci-Fi Tales magazine or something like that back in 1938. But there was always talk that the writer had a like full expanded manuscript that was going to be turned into a full novel called Frozen Hell. And that never quite happened. And that was always kind of like a big rumor. Well, turns out this past year they found it. So some editor or some publisher or somebody happened to have the entire full manuscript. So it is now being finished and it is Mm going to be published apparently later this year. And Blumhouse immediately jumped on securing the movie rights. So they are going to be doing a remake of this soon that is actually based on the full original, what would have been the novel that the novella was kind of the framework of. So that'll be interesting. But it was made 1951 into The Thing from Another World. A couple of different people had the rights to it over the years and movie studios had the rights ultimately. And it kind of went through development 
in hell for a few years. But ultimately, uh, the iteration that we're talking about today, it went through several writers and directors, including Toby Hooper. Oh, wow. Yeah, he had a very different take on it that was going to be like partially set underwater. What? But ultimately, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's going to be very like Moby Dick, Captain Ahab hunting this alien kind of thing. Yeah. But and don't get me okay. wrong, Toby Hooper is, is a horror genius, but I'm kind of glad this movie turned out the way it did with Under Carpenter. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, Carpenter loves the original movie from the 50s, like so much so that it's featured in Halloween. It's on the TV in the background when the kids are watching, you know, at Laurie's house. But he was kind of reluctant to remake it until he actually went and read the original novella that it was based on and realized like, okay, this is different enough from that movie that I can do something with this. But it still went through a couple of different writers before they found somebody that they were happy with. And ultimately that person was Bill Lancaster. He is the son of Burt Lancaster, which I didn't know until today when I was looking up some more stuff. But he's mostly known for writing Bad News Bears, oddly enough. Um, so big jump to go from that yeah, to this. that's a stretch. But yeah, ultimately he was chosen to write it. And he's kind of largely responsible for shaping the story into what we have now like even adding like the blood test scene and simplifying Mm -hmm. some of the structure the movie itself they kind of wanted to give it like a 10 million dollar ish budget it ended up with a 15 million dollar budget with a 1.5 million for effects alone which was wild at the time like most movies were looking at like two to three hundred thousand dollars for visual effects like this but that was bizarre that it went that high i mean frankly it was a lot because this movie just went over budget in several different areas well kind of going off the source material i don't know if y'all did the same thing i did but i did skim both wikipedia articles first for the the original novella and then the plot synopsis for a thing from another world all three of them do share similarities in certain themes like blood is always an important element to all three of them Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see that the novella and 1982's carpenters the thing are closer to each other than the one from the 50s and the novella came out in what 1939 could you imagine fucking reading that in 1939 and trying to fathom your head around that idea of like yeah. a thing taking over people and granted it sounded a little more you know late 30s 40s idea of aliens it sounded a little more goofy but the general ideas are still there you know it taking over people and body snatching and yeah. having to use fire to kill it but again it, it's it's one of these ideas that can be applicable to the time in which it was written if especially around the time of like you know nazi germany arising and things like that yeah so yeah. that's what I was just about to say. If, the, if it got released in 39, people coming out of Germany were absolutely like, oh, yeah, this guy's trouble. Like, watch out. Mm-hmm. I love the title it has. Cause, I mean, the thing is a fantastic name for the movie, but the original title is also pretty good. It's just called Who Goes There? And it's like this three eyed yeah. monster <laughs> on the cover. It's pretty yeah. awesome. And two, in the original 50s movie, the alien was definitely more of a like Frankenstein looking monster man. But the whole shtick was like, he's a vegetable. He's essentially just like a giant carrot man. And there are elements of like plant-based, like some of the forms the creature takes seem to be a little bit plant-based, like almost Venus flytrap. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And I always took it too, is all the forms the creature does take in this movie, I assumed were like just past forms it's already assimilated, like from other planets maybe even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on that note, I've mentioned a second ago, Rob Bottin did the special effects for this movie. He had already done The Howling and he worked with Carpenter previously on The Fog, which we've already talked about but he was fucking 22 when he made this movie bruh wow oh my god 
What have, yeah. what have we done today? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, kind of like Devin brought up earlier, he made the decision to not make the thing just this one singular creature, but instead kind of something that appears different in each scene and kind of each version of assimilation. He kind of also posited the idea that, like, the creature had been all over the galaxy and assimilated this, you know, untold number of beings, so it would make sense that it would have all these weird different attributes from, like, claws to big chompy mouths to tentacles to all this different stuff and Carpenter agreed on that and like really liked that idea because he just wanted to avoid the whole man in a suit kind of thing Mm -hmm. so that totally makes sense. Oh boy did he avoid that. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Well and it's interesting too because based off of him um, on the effects if you look at the billing of this movie and maybe it's just because like I'm listening more these days like Blank Check and F This Movie and other movie based podcasts but there are a lot of names I recognize so you have Carpenter and directing and Kurt Russell Star but you also have Bill Lancaster. The music is fucking Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone, yeah. Yep. Dean Cundy is cinematography. Yep. These are all names I'm starting to recognize as now regarded as like some of the like legends of film. That's what I bring to this show is just me being the like person who's already way into this shit, being the Chris Farley, just being like, oh man, you remember when that person was in this thing? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> somebody out there knows what I'm talking about and somebody else uh-huh. is also just like fist pumping in their car right now. But yeah, he kind of worked with a lot of the same people that he continued to work with for a while. Uh, like you just mentioned, Deacon Cundy did the cinematography. This was also his first big budget major studio project that he and Carpenter kind of both worked on. Because they had done like Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween in the Fog and Escape from New York. They even wanted this movie to like be black and white, which could have been really interesting. But the studio was like, nah, fam, because that might hurt the commercial viability of it. But they instead opted to, again, do what Devin mentioned earlier. They colored the sets and the props and the costumes and everything in like shades of gray and browns and dark greens and blues. And instead relied on the actual lighting to -hmm. provide color. It's really interesting looking at all these like muted tones against the red flare or like the pinkishness of the flares or the orange of the flamethrower or that kind of external blue lighting that gives everything a very distinct hue. Like there's a very like red, white, blue, brown kind of color palette to this movie that's very interesting. He also shot it anamorphic as well, which gave them a lot of very specific things that they could do. You know, on the color side of it too, Rob Bottin felt that with the makeup and the effects, bringing kind of a more fantastical color palette to the designs would also help them pop off the screen a little bit more. would also help with censorship issues too which there's a ton of like actual gore and blood viscera in this there's also like bright green goop shooting out of stuff and like yellow goop shooting out of stuff Uh and sometimes that can get the MPAA to be a little more lenient with you in terms of your ratings but it also again just kind of helps break up the color palette some and make the effects just pop that much more I am interested in seeing this in black and white now but I am glad that they put it out in color I'm glad I I watched it first in color because the creature itself seems to pop off even more with the color there. Well, a more recent movie that was supposed to be black and white and didn't end up being was The Mist, which that movie definitely like pulls visually some stuff from this too with some of the creature things. Mm -hmm. But you can tell like that movie was shot for black and white. Frank Darabont like had that in mind and the studio was like, no, you're not doing black and white. And so they did it in color. But the black and white cut of that movie that's on the Blu-ray is by far the better option. And it even 
even makes the shitty visual effects like all the cgi stuff in that movie even look better but this movie like i think you would have lost so much of like the texture and the goopiness and the detail of all the makeup had you done it in black and white absolutely some of the materials and shit that they used in all the the makeup and effects like they used mayonnaise and cream corn and bubble gum and ky and food coloring and like all kinds of weird shit on top of like some actual viscera animal intestines and that kind of shit yeah they really did go all out in that sense like there's you know scenes where things are filled with like hamburger meat and jello and stuff like that (laughs) but it it brings such a texture and a realism and again kind of like a weird alienness when you see a lot of those things juxtaposed against each other and rob boutine too to kind of wrap up on him he was eventually hospitalized for exhaustion and double pneumonia because he was overworking himself on this movie he worked for like a year straight and was sleeping in the changing rooms at universal studios and sleeping on the sets and just not going home and busting his ass and biting off way more taking on more work himself instead of kind of delegating things but eventually like while he was hospitalized and need to take a little bit of a break he asked dan winston to come on and do the effects for like the dog creature stuff Mm -hmm. but yeah rob button and dean cunny kind of worked really close together to make sure that they lit the effects properly without really showing like too much and giving away the illusion which that probably aided Cundy a lot when he went to go shoot Jurassic Park you know a decade later and how do I light these giant animatronic dinosaurs in ways that kind of don't give away that fakeness mm-hmm. but yeah the the movie itself they shot in LA they shot in Alaska and they shot in British Columbia um, and it was like 12 weeks of shooting but there was kind of a weird break where they, they shot about 6 weeks and then they were waiting for snow to accumulate before they went to BC. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, like, where did they shoot the actual snowy parts? Yeah, they, they shot in Juneau, and then they shot in uh, Stewart, British Columbia. But there was a weird break where after about six weeks of shooting, they had to take a break because there was no snow that had fallen yet mm-hmm. in Stewart. They were specifically going there because it's the snowfall capital of the world, and they figured they could get some early snow. But they had to take a break, and that actually really, really benefited the movie because Carpenter was able to midway through the production like look at a rough cut which typically like doesn't happen until you've shot everything but he was able to see what he had what worked what didn't work figured out some pacing stuff rewrote some stuff changed some death scenes like he completely reworked the movie being able to see like what stage it was in at that point so that's if we're talking like why does this movie work these are the kind of again how the sausage is made behind the scenes kind of stuff where imagine if he didn't have that opportunity what would this movie be it would probably be kind of slow and kind of boring and just a bunch of guys are and some of the death scenes would not make any sense the way that they were done originally. Like, it just wouldn't have the impact it has had the fucking snow in Stewart been there when they were ready. You know, like, there's just so many things like that that come together to make this movie kind of this gestaltic thing that it is that's affected all of us and affected tons of filmmakers. Just the fact that there was no snow this one time. Right place, right time. Exactly. To talk about the cast a little bit. So, like you mentioned, this is a cast of nothing but guys. And frankly, the mm-hmm. crew was also nothing but guys. There was one female cast or crew member. She was pregnant, had to dip out because she was pregnant. So, this is just guys on guys on guys. But that, again, Oof. kind of is a thematic thing that we can look at in the movie as well. But, yeah, it's basically 12 main guys in the cast. 
Kurt Russell is definitely the lead, and originally this was supposed to be more ensemble, but they kind of reworked the movie to where he would be kind of definitively the main lead of the movie. And he was already working with Carpenter on stuff like Escape from New York, but he was helping Carpenter kind of shape this story, and ultimately Carpenter just chose him for this character because they had already worked together previously and he was reliable. Kurt Russell is also a great choice for McGrady, the, uh, main character because he does a great job of playing him as a protagonist who does go above and beyond but like you mentioned earlier like he's not a new god he's not like this ubermensch he's flawed from the beginning he's flawed from the beginning he seems like he's struggling the whole way through the movie even when he does successfully do certain things and take out the alien at certain moments and another thing that his performance does is it it felt like for the first time that this is one of those horror movies where i didn't think the characters were reacting in stupid ways or like unbelievable ways it felt very much just like if i was in this situation and it's easy for me normally to sit here and say oh that was a dumb decision if i was in this situation it felt like a like a hopeless there's no right answer situation and Kurt Russell does a great I mean the whole cast does but Kurt Russell as like your eyes through the everyday man is spot on with it it's it's really interesting too with Kurt Russell's character they do get try to give him this uh everyday man kind of personality to him but at the same time they really do kind of I don't know build up the macho aspects of his particular character the thing that really stuck out to me is that Kurt Russell in this movie is never really dressed appropriately for winter (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice this at all? Yeah. One of the first scenes he's in, he like walks out and I think just pants as far as like winter clothes go at one point. I'm like, you're in the Antarctica. Even in the summertime, it's fucking below, like well below. Yeah. 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 When they're investigating the, uh, the, uh, Norwegian, uh, site with the, with the large spacecraft, the two other men he is with are, are completely decked out in full winter gear, full face masks, hoods, everything. Kurt Russell is in a leather jacket and a cowboy hat. And a fucking cowboy hat. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. There is that moment that does kind of undershoot my point, but for the most part, <laughs> he does act like an everyman. Yeah, but otherwise, like, to your point, you know, he starts off, you know, maybe slightly depressed, maybe a little bit alcoholic. You know, we kind of see everybody drinking, but he seems to be drinking the most. Drinking alone for the most part, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and drinking alone, exactly. It's definitely inferred that he is a Vietnam vet, um, as is Palmer as well. Um, so we've got these two Vietnam vets potentially a third if child's keith david potentially saw you know action as well which they kind of make him out to be former military yeah i thought he was one of the former military people yeah 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 but they definitely build him up as kind of this broken lonely guy Mm -hmm. and so for him to become you know against his will a little bit but kind of the de facto leader that has to take the reins and like run the show it's solid character work that is rarely done well and also to to talk Talk about how different this movie could have been. Other actors that were considered for the McCready role. And keep in mind, this sounds nuts for some of these now, but these are all like hot dudes at the time. Christopher Walken. Oh boy. Jeff Bridges. Nick Nolte. <laughs> Brian Dennehy. Oh my God. Chris Christopherson. Okay. John Hurd. Ed Harris. Tom Berenger. Scott Glenn. Fred Ward. Peter Coyote. And our favorite... 
Tom fucking Atkins. Fucking Atkins, oh, wow. yeah. I would have been on board with Atkins for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's an alien up here, and it's, uh, you know, it's bad news. <laughs> Thrill me. <laughs> but, yeah, other than uh, McCready, uh, we've got Keith David as Childs. He, this uh-huh. is his first major screen role. Yeah, which I didn't even realize it was Keith David until, like, halfway through this movie. <laughs> oh, you didn't recognize that voice? Not at first, yeah. Before we list off the rest of the, uh, the actors, so from my perspective, I have very little knowledge of actors at that time. So for me, I gave these guys labels based on who they resembled the most in pop culture. (laughs) Okay. Right. So Kurt Russell was very clearly Jim Morrison of this movie, right? (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) You had a guy running around that was 90s Steve Jobs. You had (laughs) the thinner Louis (laughs) C.K. All right. This is how I kept everyone in in line with what they're doing. Yeah. About half the characters have distinct personalities. Yeah, yeah. And they have distinct identifiers. But the other half of these guys do just kind of blend in, like you were saying. They, you know, it's hard to kind of keep track of who's who, uh-huh. except for like at which points do they die, essentially. Like who dies yeah. what way, that's how you remember them. Yeah. Oh, that's the guy that dies like this. Yeah. Yeah, there were three or four of them that were just there to die, basically. It's so yeah, weird. Because totally. you mentioned you had the guys with the previous military background, you had what appear to be, you know, guys on more of the scientific side of things. And then you have the other guy, like, I just watch the dogs. That's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> like <laughs> the interesting thing too is, and granted, I mean, spoiler alert: the two quote unquote survivors might be more military minded, but for the most part, throughout this uh-huh. entire movie, everyone is kind of on an even playing field. Like the military people are just as unprepared for combating this creature as the scientists, and yeah, yeah. I think that's this is, great. This is unknown. This is something that's just yeah. new to everybody, and that's a good way to like level the playing field. You're not fighting a militant alien where you can maybe fight him militantly. You know, this is a completely unknown thing like we were talking about earlier. So it's a good way to level the playing field for the entire cast. So yeah, Keith David. And I guess the main thing I want to illustrate by kind of going through this cast a little bit, for anybody that is into movies, especially like the way I'm into movies, this is a fucking murderer's row of character actors who have been in like anything, everything. And the crazy thing is the amount of crossover. When I was going through these guys' IMDb, and everybody is in, on average, 80 to 120 titles apiece. Oh, wow. Each of them probably had five or six things where they had been in projects with other members of this cast over time. But just the amount of genre stuff these guys have also been in, aside from just this one movie. But yeah, Keith David, I mean, you know, everybody has heard Keith David's voice. Whether you know who I'm talking about when I say Keith David, you have heard his voice in commercials and cartoons in movies. He is like one of those that guy actors to a T. He was in Mass Effect, right? Yes. So his credits, just to give you an idea, he has 312 credits. He has more credits than anybody else in this movie. Goddamn. Platoon, Bird, They Live. He's the guy that fights Roddy Roddy Piper for 10 fucking minutes in an alleyway. (laughs) Again, another Carpenter movie, Roadhouse. Oh, yeah. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which, side note, I might do a side project where I'm going to start watching through all those and kind of writing some thoughts down because fucking everybody is in that show. He was in Raimi's Quick and the Dead, Dead Presidents. He was a voice in Gargoyles. He wasn't gargoyles fuck i forgot yep 
He was in Volcano, The Coast is Toast. He was in <laughs> Armageddon. He was in There's Something About Mary, where he is fucking hilarious. What's Caught, Son, The Frank or the Beans. Um, he was in Pitch Black, Requiem for a Dream. Again, ass to ass. Barbershop, Mass Effect. He played Anderson, the main commander guy in that game that we all love. He was in Coraline. He was in Cloud Atlas. He was in Nice Guys, where he dies Jeez. hilariously. So this dude has been in, like, everything. That's such a diverse portfolio, too, of all sorts of different genres. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Voice acting, acting, like, yeah. Everything, yeah. How do you select what project you want to work on, in his case? Do you just, like... Fuck you, I'm Keith David. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. He is also the voice of the Marines. Uh, If you've ever seen any Marines commercials or anything, he is always the narrator in those. Yeah, the recruiting. Jeez. But, yeah, other actors that potentially were going to take this role. Carl Weathers. (laughs) (laughs) I I could see that, actually. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Bernie Casey and Ernie Hudson. So, like, right as all those dudes are kind of popping, they were all looking for this role, too. But, yeah, this was Keith David's, like, first major on-screen role. He had been doing theater stuff for the most part. For the Blair role, Blair is played by the wonderful Wilford Brimley, Mr. Diabetes himself. (laughs) Hell, yeah. He was just kind of starting to, like, get some notoriety around this time. Like, he's one of those guys that has just literally always been old because he came to acting at a late age. But he, of course, was in other great titles, such as my favorite, Ewoks Battle for Endor, (laughs) Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, but then it didn't, Cocoon, The Natural, and a great Jean-Claude Van Damme in the middle of the Bayou New Orleans action thriller Hard Target, where he punches a fucking snake. (laughs) Donald Pleasant was originally considered for this role. Now, Donald Pleasant's, that's fucking Loomis from Halloween, and he was the president of Escape from New York, right? You could see him in this role, totally. You can see him in this role. But does it not completely telecast from the beginning, oh, this motherfucker is going to at some point in time become the villain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just too obvious when you go with him. Um, and Brimley definitely has a more everyman kind of quality, which makes way more sense. And yeah. Brimley is still fucking alive, by the way, at least at the time of this recording. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. The Palmer character, the sort of ex-hippie other Vietnam vet pot smoker guy who's always just naysaying. Originally, Rob Bottin, the makeup guy, wanted to play this role. And logistically, <laughs> that was just just not an option because he was already overworked and his crew was like, yeah, we're going to all fucking quit if you decide that you want to play this character. But because this character had some comedic bits, again, these are some names that were thrown around. Jay Leno. <laughs> right? Imagine Jay Leno in this movie just being like, hey guys, I heard that there's a thing out there. <laughs> fucking Gary Shandling another weird choice uh, Charles Fleischer they were like all considered for this role but it went to an actor named David Clennon who has been in things like Coming Home Being There Star 80 The Right Stuff which oddly enough like half this fucking cast was in The Right Stuff mm-hmm. he was also in Dante's Matinee and Gone Girl and tons of modern TV stuff the cook Knowles who is constantly going around on roller skates in this movie and listening to great music. He is played by T.K. Carter. Um, He was also in Southern Comfort Space Jam, which he will not be the last person in this cast who was in Space Jam. (laughs) Come on and slam. (laughs) He was also in Badass, which is kind of the biopic of the Melvin Van Peebles movie, Sweet Sweetback, Badass Song, where he plays Bill Cosby, oddly enough. Um, Lots of TV as well. The station commander, Gary, who's kind of the main, like, 
initially he's kind of the leader of this group. He's played by Donald Moffat, who was in lots of old TV. He was in stuff like Earthquake, again, the right stuff, regarding Henry, clear and present danger, the unbearable lightness of being. Again, this is an everyday actor kind of guy, like mm-hmm. not somebody with a like face or name that you would know. The other options were fucking Powers Booth, uh, Lee Van Cleef, the man in Whoa. black from, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Morricone movies, yeah. Jerry Orbach. Now, you know, we know him from Law and Order, right? But at the time he was just doing like a lot of like Broadway acting and stuff. I would have loved to see Angel Eyes himself, Lee Van Cleef, in that role. That's what's fun about Escape from New York, which Carpenter had done prior to this movie. There are character actors like Lee Van Cleef and Tom Atkins that just show up for these brief cameos as military dudes and they're dropping all these one-liners and information and you want to see like them in a movie. You know, you want to see a movie by like Lee Van Cleef with his like weird earring also being a badass like alongside Kurt Russell on another mission like there's just so many of those kind of actors that he puts in these movies where you just want to see more of them the last person considered for this role was Kevin Conway who was in Toby Hooper's Funhouse which that's a movie that's on our list the Clark character the guy that just watches after the dogs who interestingly enough does he seem maybe kind of simple yeah he he's definitely the most reserved and he's very mm-hmm. socially awkward like he wants to keep to himself almost yeah that's why he's with the dogs yeah good point he is played by richard masser who is in heaven's gate risky business believers which is a good cult movie walker don't think twice which is the improv movie that keegan michael key and a bunch of other people just recently did which i didn't catch him in that um and lots of tv stuff crazy enough he turned down a role in et to be in <laughs> this movie and he specifically wanted this role he was going to be another character but he wanted this role because he liked working with the dogs so yeah fun times there dr copper is played by richard dysart um he was in lots of old tv he was in prophecy which i brought up on one of the last episodes the fucking pizza bear movie (laughs) being there pale rider wall street la law again another staple of our show he was a voice in batman the animated series he was dr bartholomew uh okay i was gonna say uh, my next guest would have been the clock king he was in the episode where batman gets dosed by the scarecrow and they just round him up and bring him to arkham and they just think it's some crazy guy pretending to be batman and he's the doctor oh yeah oh yeah okay i remember that yeah he was also in the animated Spawn stuff as Cogliostro. Again, this role almost went to fucking Brian Dennehy <laughs> and William Daniels, which most people will know as Feeny from Boy Meets World. Yes. He was also in <laughs> Man, this movie. this movie could have been so different. So like, different, exactly. Jay Leno and Feeny getting Feeney. fucked up by the alien. <laughs> yeah. The character of Windows, the like radio guy with the glasses, is played by Thomas Waits, but no, not that Tom Waits. He was in The Warriors and and Justice for All and State of Grace and lots of TV. Bennings, the guy who like immediately gets shot at the beginning on accident. He is played by Peter Maloney. He was in Putney Swope, The Amityville Horror, The Children, Desperately Seeking Susan, Manhunter, which is a favorite of mine, JFK, Thinner, Private Parts, Summer of Sam, Requiem for a Dream, again, ass to ass, lots of TV as well. Uh, 
uh, Norris, just kind of the like chubbier redhead guy who has a crazy awesome death scene in this movie. Oh my god, one of the creepiest parts too. Oh yeah, he's played by Charles Hallahan, who's in lots of old TV stuff, Silkwood, mm-hmm. Pale Rider. That's like the third person that's shown up in Pale Rider. True Believer, Cast a Deadly Spell, which Cast a Deadly Spell, I think I've mentioned on this show before. It's a fucking great HBO movie that our all mutual friend West from college told me about. It's 1930s kind of detective stuff, Lovecrafty, but it's in a world where there is magic and lots of people can do magic, but it's like a 1930s kind of Lovecrafting detective story. Real good shit. That might come up on our show eventually. Again, he was a voice in Gargoyles. He was in The Fan. Again, he was in Space Jam. (laughs) He was in the opposite movie of Keith David's Volcano, The Coast is Toast. He was in Dante's Peak. Uh, Fuchs, the guy that's 90s Steve Jobs, as you described him. Um, He is played by Joel Paulus, who is, again, in True Believer, the rookie, possibly more TV than everybody else. So that's your 12 guys. Now, the whole reason I kind of go through that is, again, all of these dudes were in so much genre stuff where they're like everyday guy kind of presence grounded the movies and brought a believability to them and a relatability to them in a way where like honestly like we were just talking about if this movie had fucking Jay Leno and Brian Dennehy and Lee yeah. Van Cleef and fucking Christopher Walken in it this movie <laughs> would not be the same like it wouldn't be relatable no. at all you'd be watching this like be over the wild top. cast full of guys yeah and going back to like a comparison an alien that's the beauty of that movie too is like Absolutely. the casting yeah. is so well done that these people just feel like people they don't feel like actors they yeah. feel so believable same with you this movie you feel like you're watching truck drivers just bitch about their miserable job and like contract negotiations yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's the same thing with these guys they're all just complaining about the food's bad and it's cold and I'm fucking bored you know we see like two of the guys watching VHS tapes of like let's make a deal episodes and you know he gets up and is like yeah I've seen this one before fuck (laughs) to another VHS tape there's just mundane things that they're griping about that you can relate to because you can imagine yourself in those shoes and just think what would I be doing there yes hanging out in long johns and smoking a giant spliff with Keith David while watching VHS tape sounds great but you would go crazy well and you you know they're at the end of their minds uh, at their wits end because just uh, McCready like the first scene he loses the chess game on the computer to the computer and he fucking dumps his yeah. scotch into the computer because he's fries like, it, yeah. and fries it and just says it was cheating. <laughs> yeah, done. Guess what? You don't get to do the entire rest of the time you're in Antarctica. Play fucking play computer chess. chess. <laughs> yeah. Which, yep. oddly enough, this whole cast of dudes, that's the only female presence in the film, which you mentioned a second ago, which, according to legend, is voiced by Adrian Barbeau from yep. The Fog, who was married okay. to Carpenter at this time. So interesting that the only female presence in this movie is this computer. Right. Of all things. It's kind of weird, too, going back to that scene for a second and how that that weird interaction with uh, Kurt Russell in the chess game kind of foreshadows the entire plot for you in a way. Totally. Yeah. One big chess game and then he just says, you know, screw it. And then that's it. Don't. Blows everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Nuke it. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, ultimately, 
movie gets made, movie gets released. It's a massive financial critical flop. This is one of those movies that notoriously was completely shit canned when it came out. But mm-hmm. now we look back at it fondly. It's one of the greatest masterpieces of the genre. It was to the point like the vitriol for this movie was so bad that critics were literally calling it pornographic in its violence. Mm-hmm. And John Carpenter was being called pornographer of violence because the swing and this comes up all the time with like movie stuff the swing in america is so like violence forward and sex negative where you can't show fucking nipples in a movie or dear lord we're gonna have a meltdown just think of like the amount of people throwing a fit about j-lo's outfit at this last super bowl right but we can have walking dead on primetime tv and it's a fucking family tv show right Yeah, yeah so compare like that level of violence to what's in this movie and it's nothing it's a blip but at the time this movie was a firebrand for how violent and over the top it was and now it's it's nothing you know but this movie is so special that even in today's society where like violence is just at least in american culture is just everywhere mm-hmm. this yeah. movie's violence still stands out to me it's visceral and it's impactful than yeah. most yeah. others but that's the thing that's the key word it's impactful it's well used it's saved for impactful moments it's not just gore for the sake of gore like the mm-hmm. walking dead is i think that's the clear difference there but yeah you're absolutely right it's it's fucking bonkers to me that <laughs> that's the way we went at the time this movie when it came out when they were calling it so violent that it was disturbing but now look at where we are and you're right we moved backwards with sex and we moved forwards with violence being just kind of accepted which i don't think this movie like helped desensitize us in any way i don't i, I no. don't blame it for that mm-hmm. another thing too like this was also kind of right at the beginning of the start of the slasher boom yeah you know by this point at least the first if not the second friday the 13th had come out halloween had come out so the slasher craze was starting right and the kind of basic formula for all those movies which i hate using this term i know it's not a term we need to use anymore but i don't know another like term for it but the whole like 10 little indians thing of just one little two little three little indians now we have one less right and then we have one less and you just go down to where there's just one person left right that was like the structure of every slasher movie and this movie ostensibly has the same framework but the difference is it's impactful it's not just let's watch this movie to watch these people get knocked off you know and you care about the characters like you don't necessarily have a connection with all the characters but you do want to see them make it out of this it's not like a lot of slasher movies where you actively dislike the characters and want to fucking see them murdered in the most terrible ways because they're annoying or whatever you know for sure and you're right at at least like half this crew I wanted to kind of survive yeah which I know they were it wasn't gonna happen the vast majority of them are doomed from the start but you know you're right and even though like they're flawed people just I'm kind of rooting for them throughout this entire movie yeah but at the end of the day yeah like I said this movie was a huge financial flop which we have mentioned this before but the summer of 1982 is fucking legendary just for the amount of stuff that was out in that year specifically that summer but to give you an idea the same month this was out these are the following movies that we had out the same month poltergeist wrath of khan et and blade runner blade runner opened in the same fucking weekend as this movie and et came out like a week or two before and et was like dominating everything so you you hear interviews with carpenter and he'll completely just be like no et is the reason why this movie didn't do well Everybody wanted to see, like, a happy alien movie. My movie was not a fucking happy alien movie. (laughs) No, it was, like, the exact opposite. (laughs) Yeah. So, lots of people definitely, like, blame the success of E.T. on this movie not doing well. I mean, frankly, Blade Runner didn't do well either, but 
critics hated this movie. Literally the effect this had on Carpenter's career that set him back so fucking much. He was booted from directing Firestarter, um, which was another Stephen King adaptation that he was going to do before Christine, which was his next one. And fucking Universal Studios bought him out of his multi-picture deal that they had with him. Like, that's fucking huge. Jeez, yeah. So definitely, like, put a big dent in his profile for a while and kept him from getting some of the budgets that he really needed and deserved for where he was in his career at that point. It blows my mind because I just for the hell of it pulled up Roger Ebert's original review of the thing. He gave it two and a half stars, which isn't horrible, but that's just kind of like a mad movie, basically. Yeah. And he said, this is the just the opening statement. The thing is a great barf bag movie, all right? but is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientist on that icy outpost. He has somewhat of a point with the implausible behavior, but- I'll give him a little bit of that, yeah. (laughs) But the superficial characterizations, did you watch the same fucking movie? Because I did not feel that at all. It's hard to keep up with names because it's all guys, all but two of them are white guys. They're all older. You know, it's hard to keep up with like names and faces but i feel like they all have pretty distinct looks and personalities for the most part and the people who like as the movie kind of moves through them they're all kind of distilled down a little bit further but you can infer so much for a lot of the characters so i don't feel like that's entirely fair especially compared to like literally every other movie like this this movie actually does a great job with characterizations compared to like pretty much all like slasher and you know movies kind of in this same general vein honestly like it's not the movie's job to accurately portray Antarctic scientists and their daily lives. The movie is about a fucking thing coming and wrecking their shit. I don't necessarily need them to be that realistic. That seems like a little bit of a, mo- <laughs> well, a moot point. I was about to say, Devin, what do you what do you think about that as someone involved yeah. in the science field? Like, you, you mentioned that earlier. Do you not really care? Or is it kind of one of those things where like, oh my god, I'm in the medical field, I'm watching a medical show and everything's wrong and I fucking can't stand watching this? I, I mean, it definitely sticks out, given the experience. But I think with especially the pacing of the movie and the overall, again, the environment they build for it, it becomes less important to a degree. Yeah, gotcha. But yeah, ultimately, like the legacy of this movie is secure. Again, I don't know what all we can really add to the conversation that had been brought up before, but tons and tons of media's cribbed stuff from this movie directly. Everything from like the X-Files and Stranger Things mm-hmm. to like the Resident Evil franchise and movies yeah. like The Faculty. I was just about to say that when the creature first shows up with the dog and it kind of mutates completely by the like right before it gets burned yeah that first mutation especially the first fucking thing i thought about were the resident evil Mm -hmm. games all the bosses in the resident evil games especially from four and on because four and on beefs up the body horror yeah and the weak spots are like these eyes that are in weird places like creature's eyes on their arm rather than on a face and they have like multiple faces and like pus all over them and like things coming out of their mouth and tentacles trying to attack you. Yeah, it, it, oh, yeah, the first fucking thing I thought about was Resident Evil. Yeah, the impact is huge. I mean, going down that same that same line of thinking, like when it opens up its face to be a huge fly trap, for example, or these other, you know, yeah. plant-like appearances it gives us. We've seen that in, you know, more recent films like Stranger Things. Exact same yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the dog specifically, the dog's face, when it like curls open, it's like in a flower with these yeah. like five pointy petals, the way it opens up. It's just like a giant meat flower. Yeah, that's the Demogorgon 
Morgan right there. Which, man, <laughs> that was a fucking nice scare, too. Oh, I love and it. And granted, this definitely does continue the trend of horror movies fucking up, like, innocent pets and yeah. all the sled dogs fucking eat it in this movie. But yeah, like, tons of movies have, you know, copied stuff from this Slither, The Void recently. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, The Faculty is literally just a fucking remake of this movie, but with high schoolers and high school. It totally, yeah. it totally yeah. is. To the point where they literally even have the blood test, but the blood test is huffing the, like, drugs out of the fucking drugs. ink pens. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally the same kind of scene where there's, like, even a fake out and all that. Except Frodo is uh, is Kurt Russell. <laughs> yeah. Animorphs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last couple of things. So, tons and tons of fucking directors have cited this movie as a huge impact on them. Tarantino specifically is a noted lover of this film. He has definitely said that, like, Reservoir Dogs is strongly influenced by it, which you can absolutely see all the connections to that. The whole, like, who's a cop in this building? Somebody's a cop. Who is the cop? And yep. just this group of guys isolated in one location. Holding each other at gunpoint. Like, who can yeah. I trust? Yeah. His more recent movie, Hateful Eight, is definitely influenced. A, Kurt Russell's the fucking star of that movie. B, uh, there gets to be some fucking weird body horror shit in that movie, too. There's a great, like, midway point where that movie totally changes. And immediately when I was seeing it in the theaters, I was like, oh, shit, I see what he's doing. <laughs> but also, too, Ennio Morricone, like we mentioned earlier, he did the score for The Thing. And Carpenter didn't quite dig what he was doing. Like, A, there was a language barrier between them, so they couldn't quite collaborate well. But Morricone basically just got together a bunch of cues. Instead of, like, actively sitting down and scoring the movie top to bottom, he essentially made what are called cues, where he just said, here's a bunch of, like, bits, and you can put them in the movie wherever you feel like they're going to fit. And if you find, like, a particular one you like, I'll just elaborate and give you more of that. And Carpenter basically was just kind of like, uh, I kind of want you to do something that's more like what I do. And so Morricone turns out really a very simplified score that Carpenter then fills in the gaps and makes even more simplified. I'm glad you're clarifying that because that was my thing is like, it doesn't feel quite like a Morricone score, but it also doesn't exactly. feel fully like a Carpenter, Carpenter. score. Yeah. But it is good. This is a great score. When I found out it was him doing the score, I was like, that's out of fun. Like, I love Ennio Mor- Morricone, like, especially yeah. in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Possibly one of my but top yeah, five movies. But yeah, you're expecting like, ah, yeah. you're expecting like <laughs> yeah. that through the entire fucking movie, and it's not. It's very understated. It works so well with westerns, but it's hard to see him composing for a sci-fi body horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the crazy thing, and this just goes to show how bullshit the times can be when something comes out if it's not quite hitting the mark. The score for The Thing won a fucking Razzie, okay? Wow. So, in Hateful Eight, Tarantino literally uses the unused cues from Morricone. And Morricone filled in the gaps for those cues for Hateful Eight. And he won a fucking Oscar for it. Wow. Right? Like, that's how, like, bad the times have, like, really changed all said and done. Changed for the better in that regard, at least. Yeah, definitely. And last thing I'll bring up, and this is just kind of like a fun little bit, but uh, this film is screened annually at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station each February to mark the start of winter. So what a fun way to like go right into your giant rotation is let's watch the thing. <laughs> that seems like hazing from like the people that work there. Yeah, almost. <laughs> okay. 
So that's kind of it as far as background goes. We do want to kind of talk through the plot, but we're not going to get as detailed as we typically do. So to kind of start, obviously, like the movie begins with the UFO. We see the UFO crash and then we get this fucking amazing goddamn title card, which that fucking font and that logo and everything is so good. And it's exactly the logo from the 1951 movie, but it's just so good. But yeah, the movie's in Antarctica, like we mentioned. We see a helicopter and it's kind of pursuing a sled dog and shooting at it and the helicopter eventually ends up near this American research station and the guys there it's all the main characters you know of the movie that we're going to follow they're all kind of confused by like who is this why are they shooting at a dog what's going on they kind of identify the helicopter as being a Norwegian helicopter so they know okay this is from the other Norwegian station you know miles away and boy do these people fuck up because not only do they miss every shot on this dog they then blow themselves up when the guy is going to toss a grenade at the dog and he was ready to kill yeah. everyone, like all the U.S. station guys too. Like something, he's yeah. so spooked yeah. that he's willing to kill everyone to make sure that dog dies. But then he fumbles the grenade and blows up <laughs> the helicopter and his mate. So pretty bad fail. Yeah, <laughs> the guy, like you said, he's like willing to shoot his way through the other American guys to get to the dog. Right as he kind of raises his rifle, Gary, the main station commander guy, shoots him through the window and puts mm-hmm. him down. So as the guys are all kind of gathering around to look over this whole disaster. We kind of meet a few of them. We meet R.J. McCready who is played by Kurt Russell. They are kind of going through and looking at the wreckage and trying to figure out where these guys came from and what they were doing. Ultimately McCready and Dr. Copper decide that they want to go and check out the Norwegian base. Like they know where it is mm-hmm. you know it's it's further along the ridge. So they decide to go there and see like what the fuck's going on. Well meanwhile the other guys take the dog that they were chasing and yeah. put it in the base with them. Yeah. Yep. Nice little adoption. By the way, like, best performance by a dog of all time. That dog is, Possibly. like, so, like, on its cues. Right. The way that it just blank stares constantly. Like, it doesn't twitch. It's not looking around. It's not sniffing. That dog is focused in, like, the most unearthly weird way. It seems like it's trying to actively think about what it wants to do before it makes a decision. Exactly. And you know something's already up because just watching the guys in the helicopter chase it, it's juking them and zigzagging on them. Yeah. yeah. It kind of purposely makes its way to this base because it knows, like, okay, there's some other things here that I can hop into. Yeah. And the dog doesn't freak out either because because they do drop one one or two grenades while they're still up in the air. And I feel like the way they shot this, that was practical. Like, they blew yeah, shit up yeah, in the totally. background while yeah. the dog was running by. And it fucking just kept going on cue, like Great you said. Great performance by a dog. <laughs> yeah, best performance by a dog by far, I'd probably say. Better than Airbud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, McCready and Dr. Copper, they arrive at the Norwegian base to find it completely burned down charred ruins they go inside and start to investigate and they find like little weird clues that again are completely fucking foreshadowing for what's going to happen later to them well the whole base is like burned to the ground too yeah they go in and like what's left they find like a fire axe chopped into a door and they find some frozen corpses one of which specifically has its wrists slit but then also the neck is completely cut open like the head is almost decapitated from this body but it's all frozen the blood's all frozen coming off of it and you know they're all kind of sitting there looking at all these bits and pieces of things going like what the fuck happened here man that that corpse is so cool because or 
Oh, that sounded wrong, but you know what I mean. But the effects <laughs> that they use. That corpse is so badass. The, that blood, the blood like dropping off of him and being frozen like mid-drop, forming like icicles yeah. coming down, but they're made of blood. That's such a nice touch. Yeah, it's so like unsettling. But yeah, they basically gather up a bunch of papers that are scattered around to try to figure out some information. They find like a tape recorder kit that they go ahead and bring back. But then they go into like this main garage area and find this huge ice block that's been kind of carved out. So clearly, like, they found something and brought it back to this base. And as they're going to leave, they also find these charred remains of some kind of weird thing. Like, some humanoid, weird, twisted, meaty a thing that they, like, were burning. Yeah. Imagine, like, two people mashed into one. Because, like, their two faces, yeah. like, mid-scream fused together. So, so what do you do after this, though? What's your decision-making process for this? I don't fucking bring it back. Right, That's the no. first thing. Yeah. yeah. And what do they do? Um, which these guys immediately do. <laughs> yeah. If I did bring it back, I'd immediately burn it. Yeah. I would use the giant camera that I already found in there to maybe record some of it and leave it there. Now let's let's bring it to our kitchen and dig around some more and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love too, like they they strap it to the helicopter and fly it back, and it's like in a tarp. Yeah. And they bring it in and dump it on the like examining table and pull the tarps off, and it's still just steaming it's just like goopy and like steaming hot and just gross and slimy and i love that like all these guys they're all kind of shocked by it but at the same time they're all just like yeah okay this thing's got two faces fused together but you know (laughs) whatever and and it's funny too because like it's like an autopsy room and they put it right next to the fucking norwegian that they shot dead (laughs) yeah and Dr. Copper and Blair, who Blair is listed as the biologist, so I guess he's not necessarily a doctor, but they do autopsies on both the Norwegian guy and this new weird twisted body that they found. And the one factor that kind of comes up is that both of them have a completely normal set of human organs. There's nothing weird about the Norwegian guy, but the weird twisted monster thing that they found also just has regular people parts in it. Over the next little bit, we kind of have some moments with the rest of the characters, and there's a lot of good misdirects that happen here. Yeah, where we're kind are. of shown some bits and pieces of things that, like, you have to think about the entire rest of the time you're watching the movie. When we first see McCready, like you said, he's playing chess at the chess computer and drinking from a bottle of J and B scotch. Uh, which, weirdly enough, this is like the second fucking episode in a row that we've done that has J and B featured. That's not a fucking Italian giallo movie, but we definitely see. Bennings drinking from the J&B bottle. After, like, the Norwegian guy accidentally shoots him in the leg, they bring him in, and while they're stitching him up, he reaches over and grabs that same bottle and, like, swigs right out of the bottle. We also see Childs and Palmer sharing a joint in their room. They're, like, hanging out watching the VHS tapes and sharing a spliff. Nalls is the cook, and he's also handling everybody's food. So there's a lot of, like, little things that you're already seeing of, like, oh, shit, yeah, cross-contamination and guys, like, smoking and eating after each other and drinking after they're like who knows like how quick all these guys immediately could have been infected the most obvious one even that one is still like very mysterious and you could sort of overlook it when the dog that's kind of freely wandering around the base at this point kind of goes into one of their rooms when whoever is in there is by themselves and you just see it wander in and then it cuts away from that so like you have no idea what happened then either yeah you just see a shadow of a person and the person 
person kind of turns and looks at the dog and then just fades to black. Yeah. Which, by the way, that was not any of the cast members. Carpenter purposely just picked a crew member to go sit and get their shadow so that you couldn't immediately identify who it was. Yeah. I'm assuming that's the infected human, the first infected human is. Potentially, yeah. Whoever that dog wandered in on. Yeah. But don't forget, too, the dog, as soon as it gets to the base and it runs up to the guys, it, like, runs and jumps on Dennings and is, like, licking his face and stuff. You know? So, like, there's potential for basically any one of these guys to have gotten infected from the beginning. So, we have no idea, like, who the one person is. Any other movie would just show you, like, the one fucking guy who gets it and you know it's him because he then has the Papa John sweats the entire time and just (laughs) little by little, you know he's the infected one and he's keeping it from everybody. But this movie kind of immediately throws all the cards up in the air to where, like, you don't know who it could be because you've just seen so many instances where it could be any of them. And it could be more than one person. Exactly, right? So the dog is hanging out with them. Like you said, it's in the rec room, but it like kind of spooks one of the guys and he like says, hey, get this fucking dog out of here. Go put him up. So Clark, the dog guy, brings him, puts him in the kennel with the rest of the dogs. You know, he goes back to what he's doing and the dogs are all there. Initially, all the dogs are like laying down sleeping. They're all kind of hanging out. They see him bring this other dog in there. Dogs being dogs, like this is one thing we have to worry about with our dogs you can't just bring them around other dogs that they don't know right like Mm -hmm. they could potentially fight and be weird especially pack dogs like this but he brings this dog in the dog walks in pays no fucking attention to the other dogs around them and the other dogs initially are just kind of cool but the dog is like staring straight forward at the opposite wall completely still he doesn't like go up and start sniffing the other dogs he just walks in and fucking like stands still sits down perfectly still in the middle of the room best dog performance ever by Jed the dog. But then, yeah, as soon as the dog starts freaking out, like making weird noises and twitching and shit, all the other dogs then start freaking out. Um, So, yeah, we see the dog like literally fucking explode with tentacles and goop (laughs) and spider legs and the dog's face Splits open, yeah. Open, yeah. Like like you mentioned earlier, Devin, like the demigorg from um, Stranger Things. <laughs> I mean, hell, even the dog in Resident Evil 4 did a similar thing. They'd look like dogs. They'd come up to you and attack you. And if they pinned you, they'd open up yeah, like yeah. the fucking four <laughs> mandibles. Again, Resident Evil was highly influenced by this movie. But this is a solid scare, too, by the way. Because it's so like, you know something is off and something's going to happen. But it goes like from zero to 60. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not expecting the dog's face to just burst open in a meat flower and its skull fall out and a giant tongue is just like (laughs) flapping out. And then I love too, like it starts like slapping these tentacles out and grabbing the other dogs. Uh And it's also just like spraying goop at them as well. And we see little by little the goop is it like melts and kind of metabolizes them. And then it drags them in with its tentacles to like assimilate them into the larger hole. But the guys here, the dogs freaking the fuck out. You know, they they go to check on the dogs. They all say, oh shit, what the fuck is happening? So they call for like Keith David to go get the flamethrower. And they get their shotguns and uh, McCready just starts blasting the fuck out of this giant dog monster because by this point it is like full blown full mutated five six yeah. dog heads and fucking tentacles and all kinds of shit everywhere. <laughs> and it's like hanging from the roof like in the corner yeah, of yeah. the kennel yeah oh, I love that effect like two giant claws like oh, yeah. come out of it and then just <laughs> shoot up to the ceiling and grab it like monkey bars from the rafters and it just starts yeah. pulling itself up uh, it's the best effect the few dogs that are still alive 
alive. Like, as soon as they open the door, they're fucking out of there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the dogs is just wrapped up with tentacles, and McCready shoots that one dog, which that freaks Clark out, and he's like, fuck you, don't hurt my dogs, and blah, 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 and that kind of sets some tension off with them later. But yeah, they, they basically torch this giant dog monster with the flamethrower, and once again, they bring it right back into the lab for Blair to kind of do an autopsy <laughs> on it, and um, that's where he kind of starts putting the two and two together of, uh-huh. oh, this thing is this weird, unknowable alien thing that is designed to perfectly imitate other organisms. Because just looking at this giant blobby mass, it's got some dogs that are kind of weirdly half-formed, goopy alien dogs, but then it's got some pieces of fully formed, you know, real dogs kind of hanging out of it. So obviously the plan was to, like, take over the other dogs and, you know, spread out from there. Yeah. And at some point in the movie, like, and I'll just bring it up now just because, like, it's a good point, is that anytime the monsters look super deformed and, like, they torch it while it's in the middle of transforming, they specifically state that it's vulnerable and it doesn't look at all human or like an earth animal while it's in the middle transforming but if it can complete its transformation it can be a perfect imitation yeah yeah which makes sense why the dogs didn't all freak the fuck out immediately when the the thing dog was first brought in they just thought it was a regular dog and didn't think mm-hmm. anything of it but then yeah as soon as it started to transform they started freaking out little by little they start kind of going through all the like papers that they brought back from the Norwegian camp they're looking at the video and they're kind of seeing like the Norwegian guys pinning out and excavating this giant site. You know, they're putting out like marker flags and they're drilling. So clearly like they were digging for something, which McCready and Dr. Copper saw when they found the giant block of ice. So they kind of figure like, okay, wait, where were they? All right. Based on the notes, they were at this location on this ridge. So we need to go see what the fuck they were doing there. So Norris, um, one of the other guys, he's kind of the chubbier redhead guy. He and McCready decide that they're going to go. So they go to the site and when they get there, they find a fucking giant alien spaceship, like a massive giant, like flying saucer (laughs) thing. That's still mostly buried in the ice. There was a smaller area where they had dug into like a central hatch that was opened, which they don't actually go into the alien spaceship. Hold that thought because that circles back around to the like prequel movie that comes out later. But they kind of talk about like, okay, how long has this thing been down here? Blah, blah, blah. And Norris kind of says, you know, I mean, based on the ice and all the like other data that we have from this area, shit, this could have been down there a hundred thousand years, you know, and they even find like where the giant block of ice was cut out of the ground a couple of hundred meters away. So clearly like the spaceship crashed and the thing got out and was trying to like make its way to some kind of civilization um, and just didn't quite make it and got frozen. Well, an important part too, like when Blair does his, like you were saying, when he's looking at this creature and he realized it can assimilate life, you can see that he's starting to grow a little paranoid and he even runs it in that weird computer simulation (laughs) within like 3000 days or something. It could take over all of Earth and assimilate the entire Earth. Yeah, yeah. It was 27,000 hours, which is like roughly three years, yeah. It could like take over the entire Earth. Probability yeah. of crew being infected, 75% where that number comes from. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah is that is that proper science? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how yeah. we do science, yes. <laughs> do y'all's computers work that way where you can just type in how long until data spreads takes over population Enter. Yeah, here's your answer. There you go. Here's the answer. And then- <laughs> 
Then we publish that result too. Are you currently <laughs> doing that with the coronavirus? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love I love that animation. And there wasn't a computer program like they didn't know what the fuck computer programs look like. But they just went to the graphic artist who did like some computer simulation stuff for Escape from New York, and he just kind of made it look the way it does and put the text on there. Yeah. Although that chess game in the beginning looked believable for 1982, I'll give them that. Yeah, the chess game might have been real, probably real. Uh, yeah. But the cell simulation thing was definitely mm-hmm. not. Absolutely. Matter of fact, that's not. something that kind of happened with that like second half of shooting they filmed the scene where Blair is just sitting in front of the computer but all he's looking at is the cell replication thing mm-hmm. but when they went back and did some reshoots to like figure out like what are we missing fill in the gaps let's underscore like what's happening a little bit more that's when they like did the text literally spelling out on the screen how the assimilation works and like what speed it works at and everything so yeah. it was a good bit of tell don't show filmmaking a little bit but mm-hmm. it was kind of necessary and in this regard, I'm okay with it spelling it out for you. Yeah. The way that the movie did it was nice. I know in the past I've like complained about movies not trusting their audience with show don't tell, but in this this case, I think it fits. Yeah. Yeah. The other guy on the crew, Fuchs, is kind of also starting to catch wind of what's really happening, and he's kind of confiding in McCready a little bit. Matter of fact, he even goes to McCready and specifically says, "Hey, you need to fucking watch out for this specific person." And what happened to this person? when they were doing this thing. So he's kind of also on it as well. But also stirring the pot because at this point he could be infected and just purposely turning them against each yeah, other. Yeah, you're, mm-hmm. you're not quite sure yet. They decide to like take some steps to try to limit the infection and try to isolate things a little bit more. So they all kind of decide, all right, we got to start like making our own food and eating out of cans. We need to get these fucking bodies of these things that we just had like hanging out in here <laughs> in the middle of the lab this entire time and like move that shit to a supply closet and just lock it up until the season's done which spoiler alert of yeah. course they took too long because the next scene is the scene with um with bennings right yes so we see bennings and some of the other guys moving the bodies to the supply room and he's kind of the last person out and he's like oh yeah i need to grab a couple more things y'all keep going i'll be right back <laughs> so windows the guy like the radio guy with the glasses he comes in just to check on him and of course it's just like hey bud what's going on oh shit oh shit and sees Bennings in the corner it's a great like the way he kind of looks at it because it's one of those things where if you think about it like in real life he would have just seen it to begin with but I love that he walks in the first thing he sees is these shredded clothes covered in blood and it's like the best fucking strawberry syrup blood but then he looks over and sees Bennings in the corner covered in red goop getting slurped on by these tentacles right like right next to the dead body thing because yeah. surprise it wasn't fully dead yep. <laughs> and he runs off screaming to tell everybody and of course when they get there nothing's there like the room's <laughs> completely clean no blood or anything and they're just like what happened he was right there so he busted out the window they look out and they see Bennings like running weirdly yeah. and kind of stumbling but they intercept him and you know all the guys kind of gather around you know they're all screaming like don't touch him don't touch him stay away from him but they pop a flare and you just see the most disturbing fucking image of Bennings 90% good but with like giant gross monster hands and he's on his hands and knees at this point and just has that unearthly weird wide eyed mouth wide open howl just that like 
that kind of monster sound. I'm not saying it slightly because all the all the body horror is crazy and scary through this movie. But to me, this was the scariest fucking scene when he like stares up at them open eyed and makes that like alien howl, that yeah. inhuman howl. Yeah, because you know at that point like he is not a human. Like that's done. Yeah. He is a thing. Right, that's right. All there is to it. He still has the human qualities to him. Exactly. Yeah. The only things that are giving him away are the claws, the hands. So yeah, they burn him as soon as he starts screaming at him. And I think that's kind of when they they say that like these things have to escape to complete assimilation, and then they start mimicking whatever they assimilated. Yeah, they know that like they have to fully get formed, or they're not going to pass. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they're all heading back inside, and McCready just happens to catch Blair because at this point Blair just kind of disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. And again, this is uh, Wilford Brimley. He just kind of disappeared and they couldn't find him, right? But McCready sees a person running back inside from the helicopter parked outside. And he goes over the helicopter and sees, ah, shit. You know, he sabotaged the helicopter. He ripped all the guts and the controls out and basically took parts. And then he goes back inside and realizes, oh, shit, he killed all the rest of the dogs. He destroyed the other vehicles and the snowplows. And when he gets back inside... the other guys are like get down get down oh shit he's going crazy Blair basically just runs back inside with the fucking fire axe and just starts smashing all the radios and all the equipment and all the comms and everything else and Windows is in the room with him like cowering and kind of bloody because clearly he probably like got caught and you know got beat up a little bit but Blair is just fucking wailing with this fire axe and he's got a gun as well he keeps like shooting people whenever they try to come into the room and he's shooting to kill by the way like he's not trying to like warning shot them He's fucking, like, <laughs> aiming for them. I love, too, after, like, he's out of bullets, he just fucking throws the gun, just heaves that gun, yeah. and the rest of the guys run in with, like, a table, you know, ramrod, and kind of charge him and put him down. And when he's going crazy, like, he's saying, like, we have to die here with this creature. We can't let it escape. Yeah. No escape. They can't come and get us. You know, it's yeah. got to stay here, blah, 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 yeah. But they eventually, like, tie him up and haul him out to, like, a tool shed that's, like, a separate building from the main building. So they put him in there, they dope him up, and just leave him. They lock him in, they like, you know, nail up boards over the windows and everything. So now they're trying to figure out, like, what the fuck do we do now that we're, like, stuck here at this point? He's destroyed all the radios. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Copper suggests that they, like, figure out some kind of test to compare each other's blood against uncontaminated blood, right? Initially, they're like, let's just go to the medical facility, let's get into the freezer and get this blood out that we have in store for emergencies but of course they get there the blood's been like destroyed and all the bags are punctured and leaking everywhere so somebody also figured this shit out somebody that is the thing knows this wasted all their blood and like they're immediately now like in blaming who can we trust yeah Yeah. there were only two or three people who could have access to the keys so immediately those two or three are under suspicion but everyone's kind of start getting at each other's throats and like losing their temper yeah full panic yeah and I like that moment too because because it, it literally comes down to like, okay, who had access to this blood? Well, the doctor did. Well, who has the keys? Gary, the station commander guy's got the keys. I, no, I've had the keys this whole time. Like, what the fuck? I don't know. Like, what are y'all talking about? So yeah, it becomes this really unclear situation of who could have done this, but they move past it and just like immediately, hey, like shit's fucked up. And they kind of go from there. And this is the point where like the station commander, Gary, finally does just say like, you know what? I'm like the guy with the gun, but since y'all clearly can't trust me, I'm just going to kind of like say fuck it and hand over control 
So like, who's going to take charge right now? And they all kind of look at each other with this like, uh, not me, not me, not you, fuck you, you know? And they're all arguing about who's going to like be in command and have the gun. But eventually it kind of boils down to like McCready basically just saying like, well, fuck y'all. I know I'm not an alien. I'm taking this gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause it was, it was him and the, uh, was it Bennings that went to explore the spaceship? It was him and Norris. Yeah. Norris. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Cause at one point he mentions that like, it can't be either of us because we were gone exploring yeah. the spaceship. And Norris basically just says, yeah, no, I'm not up to this. Fuck that. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, while they're kind of looking around, McCready and Windows and Nalls, the cook, they end up finding Fuchs, the other guy that was kind of getting clues about what was happening. He was kind of on to something and thinking, you know, we haven't seen this person. And he was kind of getting suspicious of people. They find his body outside completely torched and burned and they find like a flare next to him so they don't know what happened to him he maybe committed suicide he maybe got infected and knew it and he like torched himself maybe somebody who was the thing torched him before they could be found out it's never made clear what happened to fuchs but mm-hmm. he does just show up dead off screen yeah that this is like my only minor gripe with the film i'd say is like his fate yeah but you could then turn it around and say like no well this just adds Mystery. to the mystery yeah, and the yeah, misdirect yeah. so you know you could take it either way originally his death was more straightforward the thing somebody as the thing approaches him in this like greenhouse room which we don't see in the movie it's where they're growing the pot that they all keep smoking but somebody basically just impales him to the wall with a shovel and they like find his body later that's just it's not as like perplexing as what we end up having in the movie where like we don't know what ultimately happens to him yeah. on that note too Bennings he like half turned and they torch his body. He has a more complicated death originally that was planned that they just didn't up shooting because it would have cost a lot of money. But the whole idea was they end up out on the ice on a lake and he like crashes through the ice as the thing and keeps breaking back through the ice to attack the guys. But every time he breaks out of the ice, he's like in a further form of assimilation. Uh And it was going to involve like fucking flamethrowers on the ice and the dogs and all this other bullshit. And it was just way too expensive. So they just cut it and narrowed it down to what we have now where like you just see him with the the hands and they torch him. Which I think that's good. It just keeps the movie a little more grounded and less big Mm action-y and that kind away. So anyway, they all go back. Windows decides like, okay, I'm going to go back inside, tell the other guys about Fuchs. I'll meet y'all there. McCready and Nalls, the cook, they immediately kind of look around outside and they decide that they need to go investigate McCready's shack because he had like a little like shack aside from the main building as well. Um, and Nalls is like, you know, why are we going all the way the fuck out there? Because it's like a few hundred meters away from the main place. And it's at night in the middle of a snowstorm. So it's risky to go out there. But um, McCready basically just says like yeah when I left this morning I turned the lights off and then the camera like you know shows a shot of his shack with the lights on so like okay somebody's <laughs> been up there yeah, yeah. so they head up there all the other guys inside are like starting to like board up the windows and the doors and everything eventually Nalls shows back up And he's kind of freaking out. And everybody's like, wait, why are you here? Where's McCready? What happened? And he says like, oh yeah, I like ditched him, ran back. I found this near his shack. And he pulls out of his parka this like shredded piece of McCready's clothing that actually says McCready on it. And so they're all like, oh fuck, like maybe he's a thing. So they're all like, okay, cool. We're not letting him in. Just bar the doors. Fuck him. He's not coming in. And then a couple of guys are like, well, you know, if he is a thing, this is our best chance to kill him. Like let him come in the door and 
let's just fucking torch him. You know, so they throw the door open and McCready is like standing there. He like broken through another window and he's fucking half frozen. Yeah. He's holding <laughs> his like flamethrower up to a big giant bundle of dynamite and is just like, all right, you <laughs> motherfuckers, like step back. You know, I know exactly what you're thinking. Put all your weapons down, put your flamethrower down. So he like has this standoff moment with them. You know, ultimately what ends up happening during all of this commotion, Norris, again, the chubby redhead guy, he like falls to the ground, starts kind of seizing a little bit. And they're like, oh shit, he's having a heart attack. So everybody's like, all right, let's all agree to disagree for right now. You know, he's still holding the fucking dynamite. Let's get him in to the medical area and like, let's get him taken care of. And there's this like great moment of tension where Dr. Copper is like doing CPR on Norris. All the other guys are kind of standing up against the wall. McCready is still holding the dynamite and the flamethrower like, fuck all y'all stand where you are. And during all this commotion, Dr. Copper is like going to defibrillate Norris, has the paddles, goes to put them down on his chest. (laughs) Norris's fucking torso explodes open like a Venus flytrap with these giant like gross bony teeth and just chomps down on both of Dr. Copper's arms. And this is the best goddamn effects scene ever when you just see this body laid out and it just opens up just guts and tentacles not only that it is one of like the most iconic jump scares i think i've ever seen yeah it's like so effective yeah yeah. and just yeah it chomps down both of the arms get ripped off Uh, dr copper like pulls backward and it just like shreds these arms apart and he's screaming and blood's going everywhere what adds to how effective this jump scare is is when he is trying to defibrillate Norris he actually shocks him like two or three times Mm -hmm. and then when he goes for like the third or fourth time fucking mouth torso yeah yeah yeah. it's a great scene but you have to wonder if there's like homage paid in the scene to to Alien for example with the uh, the chest burst scene from that particular exactly Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I was just about to say is it's very much like that where it lures you in and there's a sense of normalcy and then all of a sudden shit just goes bananas well and then he like the Norris thing just starts immediately transforming full yeah. grotesque monster like Cthulhu ass yeah. fucking unknowable <laughs> creature <laughs> the chest opens up and we see this other like smaller what would eventually become the replica of Norris it explodes outward to the ceiling and it's hanging from the ceiling and it's this like weird gross little body with these malformed little arms and legs with its like Norris head and monster mouth on like a weird long like tentacle neck and it's just growling yeah. and it looks like a snake with his his head on it basically yeah it's so fucking gnarly <laughs> yeah <laughs> meanwhile Norris's body that's laying on the fucking table the head starts to like stretch and pull apart and the head is like screaming and the tongue's flailing and the head literally like stretches like fucking silly putty yeah. until it breaks and like falls off the end of the table onto the ground they come in with the flamethrower and they torch the main body and the monster thing hanging from the ceiling so they think they've got it but on the other side of the table is the head and this is another great effect the head slings out a tentacle from the mouth and it like pulls itself to a nearby table to straighten up and then like fucking spider legs bust out of the head (laughs) and these weird like little tentacle eyes on stalks like break out of this upside down awful head and it starts scuttling around that I fucking love like they (laughs) torch the body and they think everything's good and they're all staring at the body and then you just hear this like skitter 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 and you see this like little spider like 
like head monster like going behind them and they all slowly hear it and turn around and then fucking Palmer is just like you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the best goddamn line in the movie is him just being like, are you shitting me? And they, you know, of course, torch that little monster. It goes back to, like, if any part of the organic body is not burned, yeah. it'll continue to live. Yeah. And and you have to make sure it's completely burned out. Yeah, because every, every element is an independent piece. It can yeah. all function independently. Like, there's not, like, a brain. There's not a heart. Every element of this thing is essentially alive and reactive. Talk about another thing that has an influence all over like horror video games, the fucking spider head thing. Yeah. I mean, you see that everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's the fucking best. I love it. I was looking for tattoos a while back. This is totally weird side topic. My youngest brother and I were like looking at tattoo ideas a while back and I was kind of looking at some horror tattoos because I have no tattoos, but I know if I get one, I'll probably get a million, but I've always been like very careful about like, I need to pick something that I actually care about. But while I was looking at horror tattoos out of curiosity, the best one that I fucking found was the, like, <laughs> spider monster That's head. <laughs> That's fantastic. Doing a kickflip on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, like, best, best fucking tattoo ever. So, anyway, after all this fucking insanity, all the guys are kind of standing around, and they're all kind of confronting McCready again. And McCready is kind of threatening all of them with a gun. He's like, look, I will fucking shoot you. Let everybody sit down everybody get against the wall we're gonna figure out who's who and they say like you know given that the norris thing head operated independently from the rest of it they come to the point where like we're gonna try this blood test yeah take everyone's blood take a heated piece of wire touch it to the blood because if the blood is infected yeah it'll react violently it'll react. To get away yeah yeah but right before they do this test is mccready is trying to round up the rest of the guys and force them all to sit the fuck down you know they're all kind of like you know make a move motherfucker what are you going to do? Shoot us? And just then, Clark, the dog guy, lunges at him with a scalpel that he picked up. And McCready just fucking puts a bullet in him and he goes down. And all the other guys are like, oh, wait, shit, you're being serious, right? So they do what he says. And they start by tying up Clark and Dr. Copper, even though they're fucking dead. They, like, tie up their bodies and put them aside. Yeah. And then they all tie each other up and sit down on this fucking long bench. He keeps windows out and he tests windows blood first. He makes windows go around and like slice all their thumbs with a scalpel and get some blood which that was another thing where i was i and i hadn't thought about this until now but i was like wait they're using the same scalpel for everybody yeah 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 cross contamination gone wild have fun to the point where windows literally just looks at the scalpel and then like brushes it on his thigh on his jeans and then cuts himself yeah (laughs) that's yeah that's not how that would work but yeah not at all totally sterile Uh, not if you're trying to like (laughs) test to see who's a fucking alien you know parasite thing. Kurt Russell, like, takes this wire, big industrial copper wire, and he holds it up to the end of the flamethrower to, like, heat it up, and he sticks the end of the wire into the little petri dishes of blood, and he tests windows first, and it's, you know, it just kind of sizzles, and it's fine. So, windows is clear, now let's test everybody else. So, he's going down the line, he's testing everybody, and I love, like, this is kind of the same thing where it lures you into this sense of safety, but he eventually, like, keeps going, and one of the guys is finally just like, fuck you how do we know that you're not a thing and blah 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 and he's like cool well I'm gonna test myself next and I'm gonna prove to you that this shit's real and right as he like puts the wire down into Palmer's blood the blood literally just <laughs> and, like jumps out of the vial it's like a little like monster version of the blood that freaks out and 
immediately he drops the petri dish on the ground and everybody's like oh shit oh shit oh shit palmer immediately starts to change head bulging eyes bulging blood going everywhere his body is exploding all three of the other guys are all tied up on the same bench and they're all just like fuck get us out of here because they're right next to him transforming well and yeah and this whole scene like granted we kind of breeze through it but this whole scene where like he's testing each of their blood is so well done because it misdirects you it kind of almost pins it on another person and Palmer's super unassuming through this entire scene yeah you think it's this one person the one who like is calling him out saying like how do we know you're not the thing because he's getting nervous so you think it's that guy and then he's like and then he's just happened to be testing Palmer's blood like as as they're confronting each other and then it turns out to be Palmer who is the last person you expected yeah it's specifically Childs Keith David and uh Gary the station commander guy like they're the two that are kind of calling McCready out the most and being the most antagonistic toward him but then yeah it ends up being Palmer and as his body is freaking out and mutating again he's tied to the end of this bench along with the other guys but the body like elongates and just grows and becomes so big that it literally like smashes the feet through the floor and plants but it like lifts the entire fucking bench up into the air (laughs) and it eventually breaks loose and attacks windows and when I say it attacks windows this giant malformed version of Palmer stumbles towards windows as he's trying to like get his flamethrower going and the head fucking splits open like a Venus flytrap and chomps down onto windows head and then is just flailing his like body around this is the one effect that's yeah. kind of dodgy because it's like that SNL somebody wrestling with a fake cat kind of thing yeah, the yeah. Palmer body that's chomped onto windows is just flailing this dummy around by the head and blood's flying everywhere and everybody's freaking out McCready's like trying to get his flamethrower to light up so you know he's kind of struggling with that and it flings windows across the room into the wall and McCready like runs over grabs the other flamethrower torches Palmer and then ends up torching windows as well so now both of them are out of the picture so everything's kind of back to normal it's like all right we gotta test the rest of you motherfuckers but just to prove that I'm fine I will test myself first I'm good. Mm -hmm. The rest of this scene I kind of love because now that McCready's by himself again with these other guys tied up, he tests himself first and he tests uh, Nalls. And then I love that immediately it cuts to like him and Nalls with the flamethrower. And so it's just like, all right, you're good on my team. Next. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Little by little, it's the same edit. Keith David Childs, he's kind of freaking out. He's like, get me the fuck out of here and blah, blah, blah. They test him. He's good. Same edit where you see both him and Nalls with the flamethrowers and McCready testing the blood. And then, Gary's reaction is what? <laughs> what was you say? Like, get me out of this fucking couch or something. Yeah, it was something like, you know, I've been here for all these weeks, and the last thing I want to do for the rest of my goddamn time here is spend any more time on this fucking bitch. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's so it's like a moment that's kind of played for comedy, but it's it's pretty good. Yeah. So yeah. they decide that they need to go test Blair. Um, so they leave Childs at the station to guard everything, and they kind of trek out to the the little tool shed where Blair's at. And when they get there, Blair has escaped. They like find that he has a secret tunnel that he has fucking dug underneath this tool shed through the ice. There's also a nice little touch because they checked on him before this scene, like when yeah. they did, yeah, yeah. Put it and there was a noose hanging. Like yeah. he was ready to fucking hang himself. 
Oh yeah, it's, it's he has a very strange character development, right? I feel like he's thinking about the the greater good overall for preventing this thing from getting to a more populated civilization by taking out all the you know communication outlets from the site, uh, all the transport vehicles as well. But at the same time, when it comes down to when he's finally all alone and isolated, where he could become infected by the thing in that tool shed, he doesn't pull the trigger or you know hang himself uh, before it becomes a, a possibility. My guess is. They bring him out there after he's kind of wrecked all the communication stuff. And yeah. He's probably still fine. Mm-hmm. And while he's out there and contemplating things, he probably made that noose when he was still consciously human. But yeah. somewhere along that point is when it took him over. Because when they go back to check on him, he's completely calm. He's normal. Yeah, yeah. And they're talking to him and he just stone face. He's like, I'm fine now. I would really like to go back inside. I don't want to be out here anymore. Please let me back inside. And they're just kind of like, uh, nah, bro, you're staying out here. Sorry. <laughs> so at that point, he's probably been taken over. He's probably been taken over at that point, uh-huh. yeah. But this last time when they go out to test his blood, they go out there, he's gone. Mm-hmm. They discover that he's dug this fucking elaborate tunnel underneath the tool shed where he's brought all this equipment that he's been snitching from around the base little by little. And he is definitely the thing at this point. Like, he is a thing because he has been building from scratch a fucking spaceship. Like a tiny, small, little, like, one-person spaceship out of just junk and trash and spare parts. Mm -hmm. It looks basically like the fucking, like, spaceship from Rick and Morty, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. Just made out of garbage. But the three guys are like, alright, fuck it, like, we can't let him get off this planet. Blair is definitely a thing. We gotta find him and fucking kill him. So they, like, take a chunk of dynamite, sling it down the tunnel and blow up the spacecraft. So now, like, definitively, that's it. They're done. And the guys kind of all say, like, look, we're not leaving. We're not making it out of this. Let's just fucking see this thing through. Mm -hmm. Well, Childs at this point goes missing after they go back to the base. Yeah. They see the power go out. They they walk out of the little tool shed and the entire base goes dark. All the exterior lights go out. All the interior lights go out. And they're like, oh, fuck. The generator must be out. So they go back to the main building and Childs has just disappeared. Nobody knows where he's at. Like I said, they kind of decide like, all right, the thing at this point, it just wants to freeze. It just wants all of us to fucking die. It killed the generator. It knows we can't survive and it just wants to freeze itself until either somebody comes to rescue or something else stumbles by that it can infect. So they decide like we have to kill it. We got to see this through and we got to make sure it doesn't fucking leave here. So they kind of just decide at that point like we got to blow up this entire fucking station and be done with it. Turn up the heat in the area. Yeah. So room by room they start walking down this building, toss a stick of dynamite in and then chuck a Molotov in and then they walk down to the next room and little by little the rooms are like all exploding and then catching fire behind them as they're going down the length of this building so eventually they like blow up all the fucking rooms in this facility and then they make their way downstairs to the generator room and the generator room is basically just a caved out hollowed out underground tunnel system essentially so while they're down there they're setting all these explosives and they're all kind of separated at this point Blair in his like fucking long John's pops up around the corner and surprises Gary, the station commander guy. And it's a really disturbing, like he like 
full body pushes him against the wall, puts his hand through his fucking face. Yeah. And like mushing into the guy's like mouth and face area. And you see it all like morphing and like mushing together. So it cuts back. We see McCready like readying everything. Nall says, hey, I'm going to go down below and get the last chunk set. So he goes down. And then all of a sudden we just hear like, monster rumblings and then you see like a giant tidal wave of like all the boards in the floor coming up and a giant goddamn monster pops up through the floor and this is like the biggest most ridiculous version of the thing that we've seen so far and this is the Blair mutant version like you can see like his face kind of blended in with this giant monster mouth and there's arms and claws and tentacles and all this other kind of (laughs) shit yeah yeah, there's like dogs still morphed into it this is just the biggest ridiculous version of it we can assume Nalls died, right? Because, like, he did yeah. straight up disappear. We can mm-hmm. assume he got assimilated. Yeah. So that's two characters that die off screen in this movie. Yeah. And there was supposed to be, like, a more elaborate death scene for Nalls, but they just decided it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like, audiences will get what's happening. Yeah. So McCready runs around the corner, and in the best jump and roll scene, like, fucking jumps off this platform, pushes the plunger, hits the detonator that blows up all the fucking dynamite, and the whole building goes up. So you can assume, like, okay, you hear a scream of this like monster thing you see the entire base go up in a giant fireball so then we cut to McCready outside sitting amongst the ruins watching the thing burning and just out of the fucking darkness Childs walks up he says like oh yeah man I was lost in the storm while I was chasing Blair no big deal Mm. and so the two of them sit down and they're just kind of like yeah what happens next I don't know I guess we just fucking wait here yep yep he like passes a bottle of scotch to Childs and Childs swigs it and that's where they're kind of like oh hmm dum 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 and then it just kind of goes to the credits and it leaves it a little bit ambiguous there yeah Yeah. I love that they do like a silent acknowledgement that they distrust each other but it's kind of futile at this Uh point yeah (laughs) Um, so they just kind of like yeah sit down share a bottle and wait to like freeze to death or in Childs case if he's the thing he gets frozen or if McCready is the thing at this point yeah and this has also been like debated as fucking in Endlessly as another movie that came out the same week in Blade Runner, just the whole like is Deckard a replicant thing? It's been fucking debated over and over and over. Is Childs the thing? And people point to like, well, he doesn't actually breathe. You never see like steam coming out of his mouth where he's breathing. Some people say like, yeah, he wouldn't have swigged from that bottle of whiskey if he wasn't the thing to risk not being infected. But clearly, he wants to share this bottle and infect McCready too. Like, there's all kinds of like little bits and pieces like that that people try to point to as like evidence that Childs is the thing and Carpenter has kind of gone back and forth but it doesn't matter like at the end of the day yeah, like it doesn't matter. what the ending is and hell you could even say that maybe Childs is fine but McCready is the one because maybe down in that hole when he like detonates it and the base goes up maybe the thing was able to infect him and he became the yeah. thing maybe he's the thing at that point and, and Childs is fine who's yeah. to say yeah all kinds of bits and pieces could have flown at him and infected him totally yeah, yeah. I love this ending though this ending is so good it's so perfect so yeah ultimately i don't really think it matters you know whether or not childs is the thing or mccready's the thing or neither or or both or whatever i ultimately just like the fact that it's ambiguous it doesn't leave you with any kind of easy answers yeah this movie's been so bleak and nihilistic mm-hmm. all throughout that it doesn't fit to then have some kind of heroic yay hooray we saved the day kind of ending so i definitely like that and to kind of wrap up there have been several sequels attempts at sequels things in different media 
media that continue the story that unfortunately kind of do explicitly explain out what happened. And the funny thing is, like, they're all slightly different. In general, like, the original novella ends with the thing, like, being definitively defeated and the survivors just see this flock of birds flying toward the mainland and they're wondering, like, oh shit, are any of these birds possibly infected? Oh no, right? Yeah. The original Bill Lancaster draft for the movie ended with both McCready and Childs being infected and then rescued. The helicopter shows up to pick them up and the last line is McCready saying something like, hey guys, you know, you, you fellas know <laughs> oh, where God. I can get a good hot meal? Yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go with that. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah. There was a video game in 2002, a Xbox PS2 PC game. Oh, yeah. I remember this. I remember this game. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. it, but I never played it. But it was about a group of U.S. soldiers that show up at the base to investigate the aftermath. Yeah. McCready and Childs, I think, kind of show up in that game, maybe, from what I kind of read. Apparently, the game is not bad. I just, I, I've never heard of anybody who's ever played that game. Mm-hmm. There was also a four-hour miniseries that Sci-Fi Channel was planning on making in the early 2000s. It was going to be produced by Frank Darabont, and it was going to be one of these two-night event kind of things. That story was about a group of Russians finding the remains of the base and what was, like, left of Childs and McCready and the thing. Like, in that story, you know, Childs and McCready definitively are dead, but they find kind of the remains of all of them and hand them to the U.S. government, dot, dot, dot. But then there's also all this weird, like, the Russians are developing the thing as, like, a bioweapon as well. Uh. Yeah, but the story, like, fast-forwards to 2005, where the remains come back alive and escape this medical military facility thing that's in New Mexico. Of course. That sounds dumb as well. <laughs> yeah, instead of it being isolated in the snow, it's like, let's put it in this, like, small town in the middle of the desert, right? So it's yeah. just the complete opposite. And little by little, like, people in the town get infected. Anybody that's interested in finding out more details about that, the podcast, The Best Movies Never Made, they have a two-part episode where they, like, literally go through the scripts with the writer of that series and he kind of walks them through the story and like how it got to where it was and everything else and that two-part episode was really interesting if anybody wants to check it out also as far as like movies go there was the 2011 movie which started as a remake and then eventually became a prequel that was detailing the ordeal of the Norwegian team Mm -hmm. now the problem with that movie is this a it's just a fucking remake of this movie like there's nothing different it's just all the same fucking plot beats. It's the Norwegians. It's the same kind of dynamics with all the people on their team. It's the same kind of characters and, like, interactions. I don't need to know what happened to the Norwegian team. Exactly. Exactly. That's what makes the horror so good in this film, is that it's unknowable even in origin. Yeah. So that's the first problem. The second problem is it tries to take into account the fact that there were no women in the original. And so it specifically has Mary Elizabeth Winston kind of as the main character. And they have Joel Edgerton in there as well, and he's very much the, like, McCready character. He's got fucking shaggy hair and a beard, and he's the helicopter pilot, and he's American, and he's kind of the one laconic one of the group. Uh And they kind of start him off as the Kurt Russell character, but eventually Mary Elizabeth Winstead becomes the central character, but they just carbon copy Ripley from Alien. So it's just not 
interesting. They don't really give her much to do other than just become Ripley for the last part of the movie. But it goes a little bit further in that, like, you see them actually get into the spaceship and all this other bullshit. The third big problem with that movie is this. It had amazing practical effects, just like this movie did. Like, you can get on YouTube right now and look up ATI Studios or whatever it was called, and you can see these videos of the practical effects that they had for that movie, and they're mind-boggling. Like, the big, giant, gross thing that they first find in this movie where it's like the two heads morphed together, you see the practical effect that they built for that and the two heads that, like, actually morphed together and all that stuff. And the fucking producers of this movie were like, uh, nah, these practical Practical effects are like old-fashioned. Nobody's going to buy those as being believable. Just CGI over all of it. Wow. God damn and that's it. Wow. The, that was the biggest <laughs> fucking complaint people then had was like, what are all these bullshit CGI effects that look terrible? And then people got even more mad when they found out, oh no, they did spend millions of dollars on practical effects that look great. And these fucking producers were just like, yeah, whatever. But they're the same guys that produced the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake. And they were just trying to like do whatever kind of cult horror mm-hmm. remakes they possibly could and landed on this one. But there was also also a comic series put up by Dark Horse. And Derek, I'll let you kind of take over this because I sent you the comics to kind of like read through and give us your opinions on that. And actually, I even breezed through them earlier today, kind of in preparation for this episode. And they are all by Dark Horse. It's called The Thing from Another World, Climate of Fear, The Thing from Another World, Eternal Vows, and The Thing from Another World, Questionable Research. And they're each like four-part stories that appear like through, I think, 16 issues of The Thing from Another World through Dark Horse. The first one, Climate of Fear, starts right off after the ending and reveals that McCready is still alive. He's discovered out in the middle of the snow, dying of hypothermia, and a team from an Argentinian base show up and basically rescue him. And it's revealed later on that Childs also survived, and both of them remain uninfected. They're transported to a research base in mainland Argentina, and like the creature kind of follows them there and takes stuff over there and they have to basically fight the creature there and try and kill it and the thing is taking over like these soldiers and picking them off one by one. It wasn't terrible. These comics came out in the 90s so there is a ton of 90s as fuck extreme shit going on. Like McCready looks nothing like he does in the movie. Like he's super jacked. <laughs> kind of muscle man like Superman-esque. Um, there's a lot of that like 90s ass technology of chrome and and like things having a million components on them. Uh-huh. I'm just imagining something that's very like Rob Liefeld. Everybody's covered in pouches and big guns and shit. It bounces in between that. It goes a little Liefeld in certain places. You do see the creature kind of transform into interesting things like it assimilates sheep at one point. The last issue Childs does become infected by the thing and he becomes like halfway monster and like chases McCready with the flamethrower trying to light him on fire. Like it still keeps some of its intelligence and a screaming McCready at him as it's chasing him. There's a lot of dumb elements to these issues, but also a lot of interesting ones. If you're a diehard Thing fan, it's worth checking these books out and reading them. The next story, Eternal Vows, is really fucking weird because, like, it explores two lovers that actually get infected and, like, one of them infects the other through literally (laughs) sex. But then, like, it kind of explores, like, what happens to people's consciousness when they become the thing and they become infected and their consciousness sort of keeps going but through like genetics and like through the genetic material that this thing assimilates so like they kind of almost become like this hive mind at one point they're even trying to like control themselves from like infecting other people because they realize
realize they are the entity and if the entity infects another person that's separated from them that it'll start hunting all the humans on the island and eventually all the like islanders will be infected and they'll the thing will have to turn on itself it's really fucking weird McCready shows up in that as well he's now kind of gone full-blown <laughs> yeah he's yeah he's now kind of gone full-blown like i'm hunting down the thing wherever it goes basically <laughs> it's fucking wacky that's at least kind of interesting though because that's a yeah. central question and like how everything works and functions mechanically in this movie too is the people that have been infected do they know they've been infected once they are taking over and assimilated do they realize that they have been you know that's all kind of a question that happens yeah yeah it's kind of answered in this comic and it's kind of left in that yes and no territory of they obviously still retain the memory or at least the creature like retains their memories and everything and kind of continues on Mm -hmm. and even kind of answers that question of like if it's infected multiple organisms that are separated from each other do they all kind of operate independently which in the comic yes this is the case the lovers don't want to infect anyone else because they don't want competition basically so that there are interesting things there but again you don't necessarily need to read it and honestly like the questionable research one i kind of just bleed bleed, bleed through that at that point i was like all right i'm over this and uh i think the setup is that a helicopter crew shows up to like research the burned out remains of outpost 31 and they get infected by the thing shit happens and there you go again same plot yeah Yeah, basically uh the comics are interesting i don't know if i'd call them good they do interesting things though but it is very 90s so the art is very 90s tastic the creature art sometimes almost makes it look like a spawn villain more than like the thing yeah so uh i mean i'll give it like a six out of ten <laughs> if you want to if you really want to explore the lore of the thing then yeah go ahead and read these they're they're worth checking out but otherwise i'd say like you can pass it the last thing i'll bring up as far as like a spinoff thing and i just remember this mondo and like some board game company i can't remember which one they put out like a giant massive really overly complicated board game last year or the year before and when they announced it i was initially very interested because it looked like if you combine the game pandemic with clue a little bit like it was kind of a weird mashup of those two things but it was very expensive. It was like $130 for this fucking board game. So I kind of passed, but it was kind of cool because you had like all the character tokens and then you had like this giant like thing token and it transforms and gets bigger over the course of the game or some shit. Those mechanics sound good though. Combining Clue with Pandemic is like perfect for a thing board game. It was apparently way overly complicated though. Like I read some <laughs> reviews of people trying to play it and they were like, yeah, we sat here for like four hours going through the manual step by step and none of us are really sure how to play it still so it seems like maybe too complicated to be fun kind of things until you play it five or six times with the same group of people but yeah that's uh that's pretty much it but yeah overall this movie i don't know what else there is to say i mean huge cultural impact huge impact on horror cinema huge impact on cinema in general just the amount of writers and directors that this movie impacted it's a perfect horror movie in my opinion absolutely even like the little things that might be problems in other movies like people dying off screen and you don't really know what happened to them that kind of works in this setting because it just adds to the misdirection that this movie does so well yeah i mean right there with texas chainsaw this is probably the best movie we've done i would say just looking at it critically it's probably the one of the best ones we've done but also personally like i know i said black christmas was like my favorite movie i think that we've done so far halloween 3 this is right up there with them for my own personal best um so yeah go fucking watch it 
Yep, yep. But yeah, great movie. I don't know what else there is to say about it. Just like Derek said, absolutely check this one out, whether you're a horror fan or not. It is very gory. It is very extreme. But in terms of like the movie itself and the story itself, I think it is worth seeing, even if you do kind of have a weak horror constitution or especially kind of a weak stomach for gore. Mm -hmm. The gore in this is just so over the top and fantastical that even though it's visceral, like it's just so off the wall ridiculous that like it won't necessarily give you the like heebie-jeebies in the same way that watching a person stab another person does just because it's so out there if that makes sense so you know even the people that are kind of iffy about like gore i think they would still probably be fine and find the movie more like fascinating to watch than like disturbing ultimately as far as cinema history there you go if you yeah. are if you want to follow impact. cinema history this is one of those movies you have to sit down to watch but yeah anything else before we uh wrap this up no total masterpiece yeah there we go our guest confirmed it so with that we are watch if you dare a horror podcast for both cowards and fanatics i am derek that is aaron thank you devin for guesting we are at watch if you dare on twitter and facebook you can find us on apple Podcasts, stitcher google play Castbox. Spotify, Podchaser now. I just added us to Podchaser. Please continue rating and reviewing us. Uh, Y'all have been great and incredible, and we're deeply humbled by that. And be sure to uh, check out Nightmare Threads and use Watch If You Dare to save 10%. Other than that, got anything else, Aaron? Uh, As always, quick shout out to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Partygator, for doing the music bumps, the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes. Check his stuff out on Bandcamp if you want to hear more. Um, But yeah, yeah, other than that, uh, I don't really have anything else to plug. Nothing's really coming up for us. We're just going to keep going into the new year with more good episodes and more great guests. Beyond that, we are potentially maybe going to be looking at doing some appearances and maybe some live episodes or interviews, possibly, at some upcoming cons. Um, so we'll see how that shakes out if we can get our planning together. Otherwise, yeah, um, you know where to find us. Keep listening. We deeply appreciate it. And uh, keep enjoying horror. Now, come here, Sally. We're going to test your blood.